podcast. This is an installment of the Creative Weirdo segment and a special one at that. I have been uh, cutting it close with my interview section of the podcast here and the one that I was supposed to post this week I was going to record on Friday but unfortunately my guest got sick and had to cancel so I was going to repost an old episode but then magically out of nowhere my good friend Vuk of the Tracing Owls podcast reached out and was like hey if you ever want to repost the imaginal offerings conversation which was a two-hour super fun chat we had for Tracing Owls a while ago you're welcome to it and I was like did you just tap into my brain again because I literally was just about to have to uh, figure out which conversation from my show I was going to repost. And this is way better because talking with Vuk is one of those things that I feel brings out the best in me in so many ways. And this is a perfect example of that. So go check out all of Tracing Al's wonderful episodes and give Vuk a follow at the links below. And enjoy this wonderful two-hour conversation about imaginal offerings. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye. Guys, with me today, the magnificent weirdo artist Todd Furse. You may know him for his artwork that he does for Kryptonaut Podcast or Our Strange Skies or Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling, but I know him as one of my best artist and podcasting buddies. When Todd and I sit down to talk, we just go into so many different directions and tap into this stream of consciousness where we are channeling creativity and inspiration. And that is the theme of this episode because both Todd and I oftentimes believe that the creativity and inspiration we often feel are not really our own, that we are obtaining them from the other. But we also see the creative process and art itself as a type of imaginal offering to the other, as a thank you for the inspiration that it provides us. So I guess sit back, relax, enjoy this episode, which is like over two hours long because we went into so many different tangents trying to construct an imaginal offering of our own. you have heard me mention his name a lot on my podcast and you have also heard me being interviewed by him if you haven't go check out todd purse's show create magic daily weirdo art and with me today is none other than todd purse hello how's it going buddy hey so um i am very psyched for this episode i mean we have been chatting uh, how long has it been like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, something. And I'm like, yeah. wow, we haven't been recording and we could have recorded a whole episode's worth of the stuff we're, we've been discussing. I'm still not used to the way Zencaster looks. I was like, I kind of thought we were recording and then I realized the little lines weren't doing the thing they need yeah, to do. Yeah, they changed a lot, man. <laughs> it's weird. But yeah, no, I'm stoked to get into either where we just left off or something completely different. What, what are you thinking? 
Well, uh, so I just wanted to tell the listeners, like, with Todd Purse, we, we can go into anything. But why I wanted to have Todd Purse on is because he kind of came into my life the past few months as the final puzzle piece I needed to kind of realize some things about the paranormal and piece it all together. And uh, that final puzzle piece is essentially creativity and the imaginal. Um, and Todd Purse is an artist who is also uh, opening up to the paranormal, the high strangeness, the weird, and interacting with people in the paranormal community. So um, you, Todd, have a very positive outlook on the paranormal, which is something that I totally needed because <laughs> I found myself like stuck in this mindset of okay Gaia hypothesis all of this you know uh, our Jungian archetypes the collective uh -huh. unconsciousness but what is it all for is it for nature to dominate us and show us that we are her bitch or something <laughs> and then you know you you come on to the scene and you're like creativity and inspiration yeah well that was all way too kind Vuk and means a lot and it, the the inspiration is reciprocal is that a word reciprocal whatever that word is I get just as much from the content and the thoughts and ideas you put out there as uh, as you've apparently gotten from what I do so thank you so much for saying that man and like oh, yeah we we operate some kind somehow like yin and yang because you yes. have a more positive outlook I have a more pessimistic dark outlook like John Keel used to have and we constantly inspire each other to to kind of um, cross-pollinate these ideas. Yeah, and I'm going to push back on that just a little and say just like John Keel, your darker outlook ends with positivity every time. I mean, your, uh, your podcast or one of your podcasts yesterday that you put out is a great example of that. The... the uh, pretty much coming at the paranormal from an atheist point of view and like it was beautiful to hear someone talk about that because you don't really hear that point of view very much and like even from the little bit that i've been getting into uh these communities like i mean just the phrase a godless paranormal is something that might like really ruffle some people's feathers or make them look at things a little differently and it was really uh it, yeah but you had a real positive ending to it all which is what i was getting at <laughs> well the thing is so you, you inspired me with your um, yesterday's episode of Creative Weirdos with uh, Amanda. And you were talking about how a lot of people in the paranormal community had a, a religious upbringing. Even you had a, mm -hmm. a Catholic upbringing and how, yep. you know, Catholicism is more, um, more ritualistic and more mystical and opens up people to these ideas. So they may explore totally. them uh, like... Maybe in the paranormal paranormal community, there are atheists, but atheists who used to be religious and were in these religious upbringings. But the thing with mm -hmm. me is I was never um, exposed much to religion in my life. Yeah. I, I was never religious, so I am an atheist since birth. Um, now, how I got to the paranormal, as you saw in the episode, is via the beauty of Mother Earth and of the expressions of life on this earth. Um, and I see the paranormal as, you know, an expression of Mother Earth because we are an expression of Mother Earth and uh, Mother Earth. And if we are expressing our psychological potentials by conjuring up high strangeness, then high strangeness is essentially an expression of Mother Earth. There is no God there. 
Yeah, no. And see, that's beautiful what you just said. Like, there's no like, it's so funny because I think people hear the word atheist and they think of that very hard edged and very uh, antagonistic type of uh, mindset and uh, philosophies that just don't jive and aren't very malleable. And like, you can be a mystic atheist, you know, like you can still yeah. tap into the imaginal and everything else. So I, I, I really loved uh, that episode and what you just had to say there. Yeah, I, I maybe I didn't convey one message I wanted to say there. Um, I, I'm going to share it now with you. I love this idea that there is no God because everything exists on the same plane. Like my life is as valuable as the life of an earthworm, as the life of a redwoods tree, as the life of the whole planet. And we are all one, this uh, yeah. monistic concept. So if I am one with nature and if nature is a god, okay, let's say I am a Gaianist and I see the planet Earth as a god. Mm -hmm. But if I am an integral part and a building block of that god, then I am god as well. And I am an Absolutely. extension of god. <laughs> that makes all the sense. Yeah, I, so I love it, that. It's, it's not the real religious idea of god is somewhere out there as a completely autonomous being that commands us totally. but rather we are all the same and we are all yes. part of an intricate system you know we've uh used the idea that you stumble into like punk rock ideas without knowing it Vuk, and that's like it makes me think of going to shows growing up and one of the biggest points of going to like diy shows usually is there's no stage because they never wanted the band to be above the audience because everyone's equal like the audience is as important as the people making the music and i think that's a you know beautiful thought to extend to gaia and you know these mystical experiences in general Okay, that ties into today's topic. So as you can see <laughs> per the episode title, we are titling this Imaginal Offerings. And after doing the episode with Christina, I got this epiphany uh, because as you guys heard, Christina invests a lot into her art and it is a whole process for her. She taps into something. She adds all these details for these cryptids and somehow she channels the cryptids because as you heard Todd like she imagines how these cryptids might exist in the natural world and what they do and what their purpose is and what their day-to-day -day lives are so I'm thinking are artists actually providing offerings to cryptids and to the other via art yeah I love that I you you <laughs> You really got me going with that one, Vuk, in a lot of different ways. And I think you're absolutely on to it. We have a really fun... Well, first off, Christina is amazing. Her artwork is like some of my favorite in the world, in the weirdo world by far. And y'all's episode was great. So I'm, uh, I'm really stoked to be kind of continuing the conversation uh, from a different point of view but in similar in similar fashion yeah, we, yeah. we so we have a group chat that we've all been talking about and one of the things that came up was uh, how when you're doing artwork you can feel drained like you can get this feeling where like you get really sleepy out of nowhere and you kind of feel like you just worked like a you know 10 hour shift in a kitchen or something but you logically your brain's telling you that you just sat at a desk and have been drawing for four hours like you shouldn't be this exhausted so I've always chalked that up to a bunch of other things but the idea that that like process of creating and that uh, tapping into or being allowed to tap that threshold of creativity is you know a um, give and take and that the take might be that something is uh, taking that energy as an offering is really interesting to me yeah so 
the idea I conveyed to you in in our chat because I was thinking, what should I talk about with Todd Purse? And buddy, like you come to every discussion bearing this energy that just, you know, makes me go into a lot of places. So I need to think of just some basic concepts to start off of because we're going to go into tangents and stuff. But Absolutely. Um, I had this idea, like, imagine why would we be uh, utilizing art as an offering when, say, in antique times, we all know that offerings to, let's say, the Fae or the gods was always, let's say, food or a blood sacrifice mm-hmm. or, you know, a drink or something. Absolutely. But... Um, in those times, like people did not have a lot of food. And if you gave like a tenth of your harvest to say the Fae, that is a huge sacrifice to you because your family can essentially die of hunger uh, throughout the winter because there's not a lot of food. But now we we live in a modern time when we have so much food that we're throwing it away and we're throwing (laughs) it away in plastic trash bags where let's say if they exist, they cannot even reach that food. Yeah. (laughs) So um, providing food to something is not a sacrifice anymore because we have a lot of it. So how do we uh, provide an intentional sacrifice to something? Um, And I've been thinking, what do we not have that is plentiful? And the thing we do not have is attention and time. And essentially by, you know, creating art, um, we are making offerings to the other by uh, offering our time and attention in this modern rapid paced world. Yes, I I love that. And it makes me think of a few things because it relates to that creative flow, like that fact that or that idea that like, you know, I can sit down in a uh, day and think that I've been sitting at my drawing table for two hours and it's been six and like that time is is just gone. And there's very little else in my life that gets that much that much attention and attention seems to be the consistency if you look at it from like a psychedelic angle where you know uh, psychedelics tend to or have been cited as a way to open up to this type of thing and uh, it might be that it's less the psychedelic experience and the forced attention because when you're on a psychedelic like your attention is a hundred percent forced at whatever your set and setting is or whatever you're experiencing there's no breaking it there's you're in you're in and it's the same thing when you're a musician playing guitar and you're really in that flow state you don't see anything else I mean the only other thing in my life that gets that much attention is my kids and like they are the only thing that can like draw me in that much where like you drown out everything else so i mean these are big big consistencies especially when you look at the idea i've heard a million artists and i would agree with this uh say that you know creating or uh uh having my kids and starting my family has been the biggest like creative project of my life like it is a giant art project in a certain way and like there's something to that relationship and and i mean i know this is something we can go into more as far as the relationship between the fae and the youth and kids and the paranormal in general but i think there's something about that like undivided attention and activities that promote that undivided attention that allows us to tap into the other. Okay. So yeah, we we can go into that now. (laughs) I I know that like guys, this, the podcast that I want to do is essentially a stream of consciousness and a free form thing. So the basic concept is imaginal offerings, but we're going to go into a lot of territory. (laughs) So you told me the other day that you started becoming more 
should I say spiritual, but let's say open to high strangeness and the paranormal once you had mm-hmm. kids. Yeah. So in that absolutely. liminal space. No, yeah, that was a that was a big life. I mean, I've always been into weird stuff, and like you mentioned earlier, I was raised like fake Catholic. I would call it like I was the altar. I did the altar boy thing, went to Catholic school, but we didn't really go to church every Sunday. We went for the big holidays, and like it was a theme around the house, but it was not forced down my throat or anything along as long along those lines. And like I got out of it through high school, and like just you know lots of typical teenage rebellious stuff didn't didn't really jive with the whole catholic thing so i uh, from there i just didn't really i mean i wouldn't have called myself an atheist or agnostic or anything i just didn't think about it for a long time and like you know had dips here and there through psychedelic experiences and stuff like that but really uh when we decided to have kids was the first time i was like okay I need to like figure out what I think a little bit more to have some kind of bearings for what these little uh, humans and have questions that are going to be hard to answer. So I started getting back into things that like resonated with my Catholic upbringing, but were more in the uh, kind of Eastern esoteric, like a lot of Ram Dass and stuff like that, who, you know, uses things like Jesus and, and uh, different figures and things I was familiar with, but imbues it with a psychedelic Eastern love and kindness practice that I, really jived with but that leads you quick to realize that like a lot of these people that have these experiences and like borders on psychedelic and religious also have these paranormal experiences and i was like oh cool like these mystics and gurus are having these like straight up and that got me back into just like uh, listening and reading about the paranormal and i started realizing that this is all scratching the same itch. Like the people that are thoughtful enough, like when I came across Joshua Cutchin's work, I was like, oh, this is as good as reading like some myst- uh, spiritual mystical book type thing. It has the same questions and like gives it gets you asking those big questions. So yeah, having kids made me get back into all that, which is really weird. <laughs> so I had this idea I shared with you of people why people who have kids suddenly find themselves in these high strangeness situations. And we were talking uh-huh. earlier about say um, incidents where a wife is, uh, has abuse, an abusive relationship and, you know, an infant or whatnot, she moves away into a new house to divorce her husband, takes care of the child. And now she has poltergeist activity in the new house yes. because of all, all this liminality. Um, what I shared with you the other day is this like, the Fae per Fae folklore are kind of obsessed with our attention <laughs> towards them. Yeah. And um, it seems when people have children, uh, as you said, all of your attention is uh, is centered around the kids and nothing else. Yes. So in a way, are, are is the other kind of jealous of your attention uh, being forwarded to, let's say, that child? I think there's definitely something to that. And I think that is a really interesting way to look at the uh, higher incidences of uh, kids and experiencing the paranormal. I, for the longest time, I thought about that question as far as, well, the other thing before I get into that, like the Faye connection and the idea of changelings and what I understand. Mm -hmm. And I've said this to you when we weren't recording Vuk, but my 
understanding of most of the Fae stuff comes from people that have been writing more comparative folklore stuff. Like, you know, I've read books by Jacques Vallée and Joshua Cutchin. I have not read like source material on any of this stuff. Yeah. So please step in and correct anything that I am. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not about. an authority. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Then we're in a good, we're in a safe space here. Um, but the idea of the, of wanting that attention back and the idea of changelings of them physically taking babies and replacing them with, from what I understand, unwanted fairy offspring is like the most and covering them with glamour so the parents don't really notice and such like that's horrifying and like makes a lot of sense because they're in that light they're taking the attention by replacing the baby with their own right they're t they're taking part of that attention back to the fey realm yeah so i finished the book uh, fairies a guide to celtic fey folk by uh, morgan daimler today and uh, most of the uh, ending of the book is uh, about changelings. I was not aware of the very fucked up implications of that historical implications because. Oh, really? Used, yeah. You, people used to believe in changelings and um, it was believed like you need to do a lot of nasty shit to that child in order to force it to go back to the fey realm so you can get your real child back. So what people would Oof. do would try to burn their children, try to throw iron at them, try to leave them near a body of water overnight and stuff like that. Damn. Dude, what is with like this stuff having... Okay, so... Uh, this is going to sound like a complete tangent, but it's completely related in a weird way. Like the biggest urban legend that I grew up with around my area is called Devil's Road. And what Devil's Road is, is a back, like very rural country style road where the DuPonts, uh, you know, famous family around here, made a bunch of weapons for all the wars, killed a bunch of people, done horrible stuff, but super rich and very prevalent. Uh, they owned a bunch of estates and farms and whatnot. And the legend is you go down the road and there's these set of trees that are are growing away from the, this one house in this really creepy way that looks like the trees are trying their hardest to just get away from this property. And if you walk down that set of trees, like park and walk, you find this thing called the baby tree, which is where the DuPonts would essentially like sacrifice their unwanted inbred kids to to create more power, wealth. I don't really know exactly, but it's crazy. Like the idea of like kid abuse and how much how prevalent that is in some of this stuff and how problematic it all is like that's wild that you know that's been an issue since fey folklore it's been an issue actually since i don't know the beginning of humanity um i like we're doing an episode about offerings so obviously i needed to get into offerings now i use wikipedia you know as the first source of anything i'm not aware of so I'm looking for offerings on Wikipedia and most of them are Judeo-Christian traditions that are in the Bible. And, mm -hmm. the, you know, these concepts of, say, burnt offerings, um, yeah. you, you'd uh, slaughter an animal and then burn up its corpse on, uh, on an altar, which sounds very paganistic. And if yeah. you were a Christian, you'd say that's very satanic, but mm -hmm. it's a part of the Bible. <laughs> it's yeah. a part of the Bible. You're, you're slaughtering a living being and burning it to God. Um, it was believed in old times that uh, through burning something, you can transport it back into the other realm. So with changelings, why people were burning their children is because it was believed that if the child was a changeling, you can send the changeling back to the fey realm by burning it. Boy. Yeah. And the problematic part is that these children were just like suffering from maladies and such, well, right? Yeah, like so I, I wanted okay. to say that like what used to be a belief in changelings – 
that was very prevalent uh, through Christianization possibly became possession, demonic possession and the need for exorcisms. Gotcha. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. So and it, it's the same. It's the same phenomenon. It's the same fear that is just being rehashed with a different mask based on the com- contemporary beliefs at the time. Totally. And th- you said that was at the end of the book. Like, did she end it with that for a reason? Was there a reason that she like uh, used that to wrap up the whole uh, introduction? Of the, or not introduction, but it's the book not, that introduces it's not the, the concept. Very, <laughs> it's not the very end of the book, but it is when she starts talking about the uh, relationships between uh, Faye and uh, humanity, and then she goes into Faye in in modern in the modern world. Is there hybrid lore with Faye stuff like there is in like extraterrestrials? And yeah, yeah, there is. There is hybrid lore. It's not a lot in this book, but um, constantly you need to read between the lines. Uh, there are a lot of different Faye that uh, interbreed with humans. And the, the mm. main reason why they were uh, Faye were abducting children and replacing them with changelings is because they were using human children as breeding stock. Oh, so it's all connected then. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. And so, so you got to get the next book to uh, learn more about the hybrids. Are are you going to continue down this Feyre road? Like, do you think you're uh, inspired enough by these ideas and stuff, or do you think you might uh, veer off to something else? Well, I'm going to be going into a lot of different things in my personal, I don't know, research. But I'm interested in Faye because uh, these concepts are prevalent in a lot of different paranormal phenomena from modern times and from, say, the colonial times and from the Middle Ages. But the Faye folklore is very old. So mm-hmm. we have this very old source of all of these archetypal uh, concepts in one place. That's so it's a good reference point almost. It's like a, it's it's a, a good, good reference base. point. And essentially, the Faye is used to be a catch-all term a melting pot of everything high strangeness and paranormal and the more the more we have progressed as a society historically the more we have compartmentalized the paranormal so now you know uh, ghost hunters are only looking at ghosts but they don't care about aliens or cryptids you know cryptozoologists only care about cryptids and they don't have they don't want anything to do with these other groups so yeah um it used to be that everything was under the umbrella term Fey, everything paranormal, until Christians started calling everything demonic. Demonic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it was because those cultures and um, and those times had this more interwoven in their societies in general? Like, do you think just the way that they lived with these ideas and experiences and concepts was more organic than what we experience now? Yes, because uh, also people were living with nature. They were not oh, living yeah. above nature. Um, That's true. Uh, you know, you, you had to have a harvest. So your, your main focus as a, as a peasant in, I don't know, a Celtic community, and I'm pulling all this off out of my ass. I, I am not an expert <laughs> in this, but just, just put your mind to it. Like back then, and I don't think they had some kind of system like in the Middle Ages of paying taxes to kings and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a peasant a farmer in a Celtic community and all you, you, your main focus in life is to have a plentiful harvest. So you and your family may survive throughout the winter. And uh, they, 
they appeased the fey folk or the good folk because they believed the good folk would uh, actually allow the harvest to be plentiful. And then they'd, you know, give a part of the uh, harvest to the fey folk as a thank you, as an appeasement or an offering. And that leads back to your idea earlier that those offerings are no longer suitable. So uh, the attention being the big one is definitely something I think is really interesting. And you kind of, uh, I get where you're coming from now. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Okay, so I wanted to go into this uh, briefly. So something else that was mentioned in the book, when we're talking about changelings, um, Another reason that uh, came into prominence more when uh, when these people were Christianized uh, is this idea of a fairy teeth or a tithe. I don't know how it's really pronounced, but it's essentially a tax that the fairies were paying to Satan. Oh, to wow. Hell. Yeah. So it is a tax that they would pay every seven years and it would be in the form of a blood sacrifice of, of humans. So it was believed by... Christians at that time that fairies were kidnapping people so they may uh, sacrifice them to hell so you know they may pay this tax to Satan. It's a very Christian concept because I have read a few sources that say yeah like Druids and and, uh, Celtic people had no concept of hell or Satan so this is surely not a part of the traditional folklore. That's super interesting, though, to hear the two get meshed up like that. Because, uh, I mean, I, and I, again, uh, correct me if I'm wrong from what you just read, but like to me, the Fey folk, although mischievous and will definitely, you know, uh, mess you up and whatnot, they seem to be more like uh, chaotic neutral, if that makes sense. Like they seem yeah. to be less like evil because evil does. I mean, yeah, did they have concepts of like like we have of hell and stuff like that, or was that all brought with that? The that, that was that was Christian stuff, and. Um, yeah. I read a quote that it was believed when, you know, after Christianization, that the Fae are fallen angels, which did not end up in hell, but ended up on earth. So somewhere in the middle ground. And they they are liminality itself, because there is something liminal between the divine and the demonic and between uh, humans and the underworld. Oh, yeah. No, those are where all my favorite... uh characters from like the like christian so like the nephilim and, and the giants and all that are aren't they all like fallen angels that didn't make it down to down to hell and whatnot like it, that stuff is where the true crazy monsters seem to come from <laughs> yeah. now i wanted to also go into this like this fairy tithe this tax that they pay uh, to yeah. hell so it is paid every seven years and there is this motif present in different cultures and in different Judeo-Christian concepts relating to Satan. So I wanted to mention, you remember the Serbian epic poem that I recited the other day, uh, The yeah. Walling of Skadar, where a woman was was essentially sacrificed to appease a fairy which was uh, which was tr- constantly crumbling the foundation of a castle. The thing is, when you go into that poem, so they tried to erect the castle for four years, and they couldn't. And then the fairy told them to go seek out two, uh, a brother and sister, two individuals with the same name, and they spent three years trying to seek them out and nothing. And then the fairy said, okay, you need to sacrifice your wife. Seven years passed. 
Seven's the number, man. Yeah, I realize that now. And it's so interesting because usually six is associated with Satan and here seven, uh, which is usually a good number is associated with a blood sacrifice of a human. That's super interesting. The the triple sevens has been one of my one of my best friends forever, um, who is was way into a lot of this stuff. Uh, he worked and did a lot of illustration work for Robert Anton Wilson and was very involved in that scene. He used to sign all of his work with 777 and I never, I always thought he was just making a joke off of 666 and then like finally like, you know, 20 years later actually realized that it's a whole thing on its own and like, yeah, 7 has its whole own connotations but that is not normally associated with like, you know, like you're just saying blood sacrifice and everything. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And also, Very like in th- this is present in modern times, so you know the concept of the crossroads devil. Yeah, and was, since we're talking about imaginal offerings, the crossroads devil is essentially you you stumble upon a devil and uh, sell your soul to the devil, and the devil uh, grants you inspiration and creativity, which uh, apparently happened to a jazz musician under the name of Robert Johnson. Are you aware yep. of him? Very much so. Okay. Sold a soul to the devil at the crossroads. Okay. And do you know that he uh, died seven years after he allegedly sold his soul to the devil? Yes. And he was the seventh son, if I remember right, as well. Is that accurate uh, from his family? I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think that <laughs> was, so I think, yeah, totally. It's definitely one of those like numbers that have you ever gotten into any of the, any of Robert Anton Wilson's work? No, no. He had a series of synchronicities around the number 27 that is like one of my favorite number uh, and, stories. Yeah, that, that's where I'm getting at. So the Club 27. Yes, when, totally. When we're talking about people who are inspired and um, we're going to go into it, but uh, there is this uh, overarching concept of supernaturally being imbued by creativity, but having a very, very short life that essentially uh, the creativity drains you of your life force. And you were the other day telling me about the club 27. I think Robert Johnson was probably in the club 27. I need to verify that. Yeah, I can't, uh, I don't have that off the top of my head. I mean, also, yeah, the, the 27 club is the, you know, uh, famous artists and creatives who have died at the age of 27 and it's constantly growing. The big ones are Kirk Cobain. The big modern ones are Kirk Cobain, Amy Winehouse. There's so many that were just like, uh, not just like creative geniuses, but cultural, like revolutionary type people that is just next level. And I, yeah, there's something to, so if we're going into what you were saying as far as, or the, what the podcast you sent me the other day was saying Mm -hmm. as far as, uh, essentially creativity being a almost like sacrifice of life force to what was the phase name that, okay, uh, so create, we're, we're yeah, get in, you that. tell the story because you're better <laughs> at this than i am and and i i definitely have some thoughts on it so obviously if we're talking about imaginal offerings uh we will go into the concept of muses and uh, there is this concept in fae folklore of a fae called the lianan she which is essentially okay, translated yep. into fairy lover and is portrayed as a beautiful woman that appears to struggling artists and uh, she um, uh, she provides uh, creativity and inspiration to these artists but in turn feeds off their life force and these artists usually live a very creatively intense life but a very short one and die yes. very young 
Totally. And that concept scares me. But in, like, I have this initial knee jerk reaction to be like, nope, that's not a thing as a working creative. But really, I think I messaged you about like, I there's something to it. Like there's something to like, there's something I think uh, that resonates as truth there. And that's why my initial knee jerk reaction is like, no, that's not a thing. <laughs> okay, um, I, I'm going to assure you of something. So I went into it and I listened to a few podcasts. One podcast is from somebody who is a historian. Um, and she told on the podcast that there, she could not find any uh, evidence of the Liana and she even being a thing in traditional faith folklore, but rather it is a literary concept that uh, started occurring in the, 1800s that's um, so funny. in victorian times and uh you in it sounds those very times, victorian yeah in those times it was very fashionable for artists to be these you know um very melancholic and depressive men and yep. uh, that that's why this whole concept sparked because they were romanticizing women yeah. I, you know <laughs> no the whole, yeah the whole concept of the muse during the victorian era which is very sexist that's really so that actually makes me feel a lot better Vuk, that you dug into that and that's what you found because that was essentially what i messaged you as far as my reaction was that like i feel like it's a problematic way of thinking about art these days or in general because there is something very alluring and true in the way that like almost like that trauma can lead to profound insight and like great creative works but it's not necessary like for every artist that you can cite that did have depression or you know took their own lives or had um alcohol or drug i could name five more that never had a you know more than a mild case of depression in their lives and still created beautiful output out output and, and like and that's still... why you are an inspiration for me because you are one of the rare individuals uh, at least which i have chatted with who is an artist of the paranormal and who gets it like your art speaks to me and resonates with me on that level so you are oh. conveying something authentic related to well, high strangeness you. and paranormal but you come from a very positive outlook of that not from trauma and most people in the paranormal community are attracted to the paranormal because of trauma and because of the darkness of it it's true it's true and it's a weird line to, like you know you brought up my conversation with amanda uh the other day and that was one of the first times i talked to somebody who was very open or you know more open and said that like her paranormal experiences are related to a trauma that she had and had a you know mother who had addiction problems and like that was a big factor and when you hear it from it's like yeah, I'm just kind of into this stuff and didn't go through any, but she still landed on a positive outlook on all of this. So it's one of those things where it's like, maybe it's okay. And maybe it's like, actually, I don't know if you saw, but she listened to your episode and loved it and reshared it and was very excited that it inspired you to record that. And I think there's like, the more we can reframe uh, the the whole thing as a experience, I don't want to say a thought experiment because it makes it, it denotes it as it not being real or like less impactful. But like if, if, you know, you can take a step back and use this for essentially the it, it, touching that psychedelic or that thing that is more than all of us or that group consciousness, then it seems to be the most beneficial part. Like it seems to be what, what this is essentially leading everybody to. And I don't know if, I feel like with all the negativity and the trauma that exists inside of, you know, the paranormal sphere, there is an equal amount of positivity that just doesn't get as many like 
likes or views or listen does that make sense like i feel yeah. like there are a lot of positive voices out there but there e- even like someone like joshua cutchin who like you know wrote a whole almost three bo- two books and then a whole third compendium on death and the pa- like it's a really positive book like yeah it's very, exactly like, i want to say like, that like it's the most positive book about death <laughs> Yeah. And like, I hope it sells a bajillion copies, but like, I don't, and it, I don't, if it's not as successful as it should be, I don't think it's because of the death thing. I think it's because of the positivity. I, I don't think positivity like sells or is as marketable as the doom and gloom and scary stuff, which is very real and true. And I'm not trying to say it's not, but I do think there's lots out there where it's the opposite. It might just not be as popular or prevalent. Well, this concept of the Liana and she started off as a literary trope and was popular popularized. I don't know his name now, but by one individual writer who essentially uh, created a lot of these uh, fey women and made them vampires who prey on men. Some somehow like succubi. Yeah. Yeah. But then again, this, (laughs) this concept, you know, uh, okay. It is a work of fiction. There is no, let's say historical folkloric basis of it actually being a thing in, Uh in Celtic folklore. But still, um, it is a creative product, and via creative products, you uh, can learn a lot about archetypes and stuff like that. So Absolutely. It opens up this idea of uh, muses and of uh, creatives actually tapping into something outside of their individual consciousness, which provides them this creativity, but in doing so, it also drains them and tires them out. And you know already what I'm talking about. (laughs) No, absolutely. And I think that's the part that I relate to with all of this is that there's definitely an exchange and that's the, you know, how to frame it is an interesting one. I, I, said several times on my podcast and others that like I don't have very many paranormal experience experiences but I feel like I touch the paranormal or the supernatural or the other or whatever you want to call it on a daily basis through doing the work like through doing the creative work and through drawing and all of that stuff I feel like you know there's I'm touching something and being that I don't have that uh kind of base experience to to compare it to i don't know if that's super accurate but i have a hint that it might be just from all the other people i've talked to you know what else is super interesting to me that uh this might be kind of a tangent but you put out that episode on the uh on betty and andreessen oh yeah i just swallowed my (laughs) water (laughs) weird um but uh and you were talking about the drawings that she made Were, were they made while she was under hypnosis yeah yeah exactly yeah. So it seems like, you know, I, every hypnosis that session that I've heard of has this large drawing aspect to it. Like it seems like a big tool in the hypnosis's tool belt. And that's really interesting to me as far as like the connection that you can be in this whole other state and like, you know, relaying these things and the most useful way to relay them is a pencil, is this base like physical action of drawing. And uh, is that consistent in a lot of the stuff that you've uh, read as far as hypnosis i am now very interested in this concept so it is prevalent in betty andresen's case and during her hypnotic sessions she drew very very elaborate detailed uh, uh descriptions of everything the ufo the aliens the bird that burned in front of her everything um she also spent uh, the rest of her life uh, painting pictures of her and the various different entities and they are very reminiscent of do you know who David Huggins is Yeah absolutely uh, so uh, if you look at her later <laughs> paintings in life they are very reminiscent of his paintings only much less sex in them. I was going to say 
with <laughs> that's very fair yeah that's that's really interesting do you know if she, was she a creative before the experience or was it something that happened afterwards i don't know i i should look into that in in the second book oh uh, yeah so yeah i've never I, i'd be really interested in checking out that second book your podcast made me really want to dive into that i think i'm gonna have to because i never Man, have so and- the second book is full of weird shit I cannot even uh, tell you everything. So I am like <laughs> one third into the book and already okay. there are so many things that I can't uh, off the top of my head, uh, mention them all. So there is, uh, let's say, uh, during her hypno- hypnosis sessions, there is poltergeist activity. There is, uh, electronics, uh, getting, you know, screwed up. There are uh, shadow people. There are light orbs being, being seen by wow. the other people around her. Also, um, she has this story when she was a girl, she was in, uh, her father's barn and she was waiting for another girl to show up so they can play. And, uh, suddenly what she said was a bumblebee started, uh, rotating around her head in circles and she Whoa. found herself in a trance like state. And this bumblebee thing, uh, landed between her eyes on her forehead and she communicated with entities through it. And later on, she would say it only seemed to her like a bumblebee, but it was actually like a little marble of light. And after that, after that, she fell asleep in the barn and was woken up later by her um, friend when she showed up. Now, when she was maybe 12, she was uh, going around the forest laying traps for animals. And in a moment, like she stumbled upon a hole in the ground and out of the hole emerged a gray in this blue uniform with the same uh, bird emblem. And he paralyzed her by pressing some kind of button on his torso and then told her like, why are you setting traps for the animals? Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And then he took away her traps and she came back too. And after that, during the hypnosis session, it's all written down. She said that she has this uh, this unexplained feeling that she wants to be one with nature and that she wants to protect the earth. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. And was that all Raymond Fowler doing the hypnotism? Raymond Fowler was not. He employed a whole team of people to do the hypnosis oh, sessions. Y- Raymond Fowler was very frustrated, especially during the second book. Like constantly there are ramblings of his like, I want I want to just stop all this nonsense because this is getting so weird. I don't have time for this. <laughs> and you said eventually in your podcast that he came around and was transformed himself by all of this, right? Oh, yeah. Like so he, everything you're reading in Joshua Cutchin's book, uh-huh. uh, a lot of that is uh, in, is inspired from Raymond Fowler's work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, it makes me want to go back and read a lot more or get more a lot a lot more into his work in general. Yeah, I think you, he's, he's a very big unsung hero of the ufology community. He started off as a very, very credible ufologist. And most podcasters would know his name because of the Allagash abductions, because that's a very popular abduction case that is constantly uh, talked about on podcasts. That but was nobody really kids, right? It was for artist friends who were yeah, abducted by a giant friends, glowing globe of light. Yeah, that's the one where like one of the didn't some of them deny it and one of them didn't. Yeah, yeah. And then they yeah, yeah. Okay, I remember that guy. Yeah. And it was really like most terrifying people, for him, right? Most people will know because one of the witnesses was named Jack Wiener. 
<laughs> I I love that. Nothing like a good dick joke to get something going in the uh, in the pop culture there. Um, yeah, that's so. Those were his two big cases. Was that was this in the Allagash? Yeah, yeah. But Betty Andreas and like he remained with her throughout his whole life. Um, gotcha. uh, writing about her, even his later books, The Watchers, was inspired by everything he uh, learned from Betty and her psychedelic experiences especially the experiences of being abducted astrally later on she would uh, find out that she was not being abducted physically corporeally but astrally and being brought huh. to a d- dimension of light to meet these elder light beings which are much taller than her so they were more like outer body out of body experiences yeah. than abductions that that jives i like it that, that so how many like how many books about that case are there is it just the two or so there's the andreasen affair then there's the andreasen affair phase two the andreasen legacy the watchers <laughs> which is heavily influenced by her and then there are his own books like uh, ufo testament and uh, ufo the final abduction and i think Last year, or even this year, he released a new book, which is about NDEs, OBEs, abductions, and time lapses. Okay, very, that's uh, very familiar. Do you, uh, so with something like this, where do you see, like as far as the Gaia hypothesis playing a role in, in a case like this, how do you see that factoring in? Okay, so going back to the Liana and she, I sent you a podcast episode about the Liana and she that, that you know, Muse, oh, yeah. fairy lover. Totally. And by the end of that episode, they were talking like maybe the Liana and she is not something negative, like yep. uh, succubus <laughs> sucking the life force out of men, but rather she is providing inspiration to creatives so she may convey messages to creatives so creatives may, through their creations, um, share the fey message. Yes, yes. That's where I started liking the podcast a lot more. It's funny because I messaged you what I said earlier without finishing the podcast yeah. because I was like, ah, and then I finished it and I messaged you right. I was like, oh, I just finished it. Yeah, I like yeah, that that's a lot. More, <laughs> I, I think there is a lot of Christian influence in all of this because Christians want to just label everything as demonic and yes, like stay no, away absolutely. from that. No, I think you're right there for sure. Like, you, it, so, Okay, so I think maybe... It, okay, if uh, these uh, channelings of... Uh, creativity are essentially messages from these other beings the other and if the other is an extension of gaia then we are receiving gaian messages and always Mm -hmm. it's messages of stop your wars be at peace stop the nuclear weapons and save the planet and stuff like that so i am thinking maybe i mean i am leaning towards that that the paranormal is essentially uh, creative expression of life itself of the planet and if the planet has a consciousness that is interacting with our own consciousness then it is uh, communicating with us via symbols that are already present in our minds you know archetypes yeah and it no, is using these archetypes as puppets you know uh, people won't listen to me because i am a giant planet that they cannot comprehend <laughs> but they can certainly comprehend say an alien which is like you know an advanced yep. being or a virgin mary or an angel or even an elder creative of light as betty and had. 
Absolutely. That's one of my favorite concepts in general. There's, I'm going to, okay, here's a story that's not, that's going to sound real funny because I don't know any of the specifics, but the concept is one of my favorites. And uh, there's a science fiction story where essentially there's a otherworldly presence interacting with humanity and the humans are begging them to show them themselves. And they're just like, no, you, you don't want to see us. Like it ain't going to work. You got, you're not going to like it. You're not going to like it. And at the end of the book is them showing themselves and they look like the devil, like horns and fangs and like everything. They're like, we're not evil. You just have this real weird concept of the way we look. So this is why we never showed you the way we look. And like, you know, if the earth tried to communicate with us, we'd all just probably explode. Or like the old stories of when people would see angels and their tongues would fall out of their mouths and their eyes would burn because you can't look at that type of stuff directly and whatnot. Like, yeah, so you can't. The reason, like, I am now interested in Druid folklore and Fey folklore and uh, generally in paganism pre-Christian mm-hmm. paganism is because people were in tune more with nature than, I mean, there was anthropocentrism and there was, you know, we were, uh, we had a pantheon of different gods and all the gods were humanoid essentially. Yeah. But they were personifications of nature. They were not a personification of uh, the ultimate dick of, of male <laughs> dominance, you know, that's very true. That's very well, true. No, well, that... the Judeo-Christian God is very outside of nature and very uh, human in a way, anthropocentric, in a way conveying a message that humans are special and that they are the center of the universe and that they are his chosen ones and that nature wow. is only um, an artistic expression of God. So God may through nature show us his magnificence instead of nature yeah. showing its own magnificence it, to us, you know, which it obviously has plenty of. And yeah, yeah. no, that makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that, yeah, that, that so lines I think, up. I think throughout the years, throughout history, um, the Judeo Christian, uh, point of view, uh, started, you know, manifesting and spreading more and isolating people from nature and isolating people from a guy unconsciousness or from Faye or the other or whatever you want to call it. And uh, in doing so, like, how do you spread, um, how do you force people to isolate themselves further from nature? Maybe by telling them uh, that uh, mask the nature presents itself to you or the Faye or whatever is the devil and that you should stay away from it. So you yeah. can isolate people inside your own ideology where now we are, our belief system is kind of meta. We are obsessed <laughs> with ourselves. We are not obsessed with the world around us. That's very true. That's a really interesting way to look at it. And do you, I mean, obviously I think you're right. And, you know, I think that makes all the sense in the world. And do you think that, do you think it's an effective communication tool? As far as like Gaia using uh, creativity and stuff. That's something that, because like like you said earlier, I definitely feel like something is, I'm connecting to something and something like the, I've been working on this little comic that's about a lot of this stuff and like psychedelics and the paranormal and fun. And to be like the way that came about was probably like from all of the conversations that we've been having in these side chats. And like, I just typed all of those words out without thinking about it and then drew pictures to them. And I don't really know where they all came from. And I definitely think something is communicating through artists, but like 
yeah, I always wonder, is this effective? <laughs> like, is, is this just the best that they can do? Kind of like the idea of like, you know, when people are talking about ghosts, like get, only having limited abilities in this realm and like they do what they can. Like, is that just like the best that Gaia can do or like just the best that we can understand? Or I don't know. Do you understand? Does that make sense? Yeah, I understand. But I, I don't know the answer to that question. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's OK. I, I just want to hear what you think. <laughs> Man, I think like, okay, if we are a product of evolution, if we are product, a product of Gaia, and if our consciousness is a, an extension of a Gaian consciousness. So let's say in video game terms, um, uh-huh. Gaia is the main game and we are the DLC, the expansion pack, you know? Yes. We just add content onto Gaia, but we cannot function without a Gaia, which is the original base system. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And we work off of the Gaian original base system. So our minds that are both so much, our yeah. own, but both Gaia. Like Gaia has a tendril that goes into all of our heads. We, uh, we are that. marionettes of nature, yes. but we are autonomous also. As, no, that's that double, that dualism or that uh, the doubleness that is so like per- persistent in all of this. It's, it's really what I love is that like, contrary way that we are connected to it all but are still individualistic at the same time and yeah yeah, but the thing is like if if we are marionettes and we have these strings that attach us to this overarching gaian consciousness that is the source of life and maybe the source of our own consciousness you know maybe we are just devices tapping into uh, uh, a wi-fi network (laughs) you know, uh-huh. of, of consciousness. Okay. So yeah. we constantly spend our lives trying to tug at these strings and, and uh, free ourselves from them. But what happens mm-hmm. if we actually free ourselves from them? Will we even be alive? Because we sever yeah. our ties with the consciousness. I don't, I don't think it's possible to be honest with you. And like, you know, like you've told me several times through our conversations, you tell, you remind me that I have a uh, slightly anthropomistic uh, point of view and like, or sorry, anthropocentric point of view. I'm bad with words sometimes. Um, But like, I, I really think there's something that's like, like, and I know nature would go on without humans and I know the earth would survive, but like, I think there's something that we add to each other that is like hard to describe. And like, there's no way to scientifically describe it, but there's, there's a a symbiotic relationship of sorts. And I don't know what that is or if that's accurate. And I know we kind of, uh, okay. Cause I know there's, and like, I think, I don't think we disagree on it. I think I, I just, place more importance in the human side or like not more power i don't know i feel every time that you explain the way that you view things i'm like he's right but then like when i start thinking about it myself i'm like oh i still think humans are really special special, but we overestimate our speciality and we Uh think that we are so special that we deserve to sever our ties from everything and essentially consume the mother which birthed us yeah yeah okay see again you just did it again the thing is with great power comes great responsibility (laughs) (laughs) this is true this is true and like you know i think that like it's good to have both voices and be able to like, I think that's one of the reasons I like talking with you so much is that you are the more responsible like uh, voice in this. And that like, I, I think you're 
you're closer to the to the reality if that makes sense like i i don't know obviously there's okay, no I right answer to any of this shit but <laughs> i am only closer <laughs> to what may resemble the reality yeah exactly and but it, it's it's funny Vuk, because again it's like this thing where i have it's like when you sent me that podcast i have this knee-jerk reaction to be like mm, and then i'm like no it's, it, it becomes comforting it becomes like like being able to like have that uh knee-jerk like i don't know if that's if i agree with that and then being able to be like well i might not agree with it but there's something comforting about it being more correct if that makes sense i don't know and what are you referring to actually just, Oh, <laughs> just the idea, like, I guess the importance in the role of humans in everything. Like, I, I think that, like, you know, I agree with everything you just said. Obviously, I think you have a beautiful way of, of reminding uh, us that, you know, nature has a way of going on without us. Like, we are secondary to everything. But I, it, it, there's something in me that just, like, really embraces this, like, mystic humanism that, like, I don't know if humanism is a good or a bad word, but, well, like, this the, thing, the thing that... Is, dude, I embrace that as well. But, uh, okay, so nature can go on without us. But if, if nature would, say, make us all extinct now, and probably it can if it wants to, I mean... Who knows what COVID was, an expression <laughs> of nature, you know, to the overpopulation Absolutely. of the earth. But if nature can wipe us out, why doesn't it do that? Maybe we are uh, you know, as important as you say. And maybe if nature would sever its ties to us and allow us to die and cease to exist, it also loses this imaginal other dimension of existence, which we tap into and via us she has access to because it is another uh, portion of her being it is another expression of yeah. her so okay. if she if she gets rid of us she is getting rid of a very important aspect of herself yeah, you just said exactly what I wanted to say. See, Vuk, you should just translate for me because that's uh, <laughs> that's exactly what, like, I think that, and like, I don't know if, obviously, uh, I've said it a million times, I don't know any of this stuff, but I feel like that creative, imaginal thing is like what the special sauce us humans bring to the table. And I think it's related to our emotions. Like, I really think that the creative, like, the creative uh, places we can access are deeply related to our emotions and not in a way that we were talking about earlier, like you have to be like a troubled artist or anything, but like you can get the same power out of humor and you can get the same power out of like, you know, a really genuine nostalgic I interaction and like uh, to kind of go back to some of the things we were talking about with the kids stuff. When I had kids myself and was thinking about kids interacting with the other and experiencing ghosts or paranormal or any of that stuff more frequently, I started thinking it has more to do with the like constant liminal emotional states that they're in. Like they go from being the happiest little motherfuckers in the world to being the most pissed off people to being the saddest in a matter of like two minutes. And none of them, none of those emotions linger to affect them. And they're just constantly in the state of, of like strong, huge emotions and liminality that I think opens up creativity, the other, like all of the stuff we've been talking about. I think it's like one of the keys. Like, I don't know if there's any one particular key, but I think like emotions and creativity are one of the big ones and they're connected somehow. So in this fairy book, uh, the writer by the end actually comments on that and says how kids have these changes of emotion, which are very, you know, extreme, as you were saying. Um, they go from zero to 100 <laughs> very quickly. Yeah. 
and uh, how uh, we as a society like adults are more historically we have she wants to say that the earth does not have less enchantment in it, but rather we are less willing to open ourselves to the enchantment around us. And we uh, all just prefer this mediocrity of emotion. Wow. I love that. That's really beautiful. And uh, yeah, I resonate with that really hard. There's like emotions are really weird and there's so many different ways that different cultures have looked um at emotion, emo, bleh, <laughs> I'm getting all tongue tied. Uh, I have looked at emotions, and I remember there's a oh man, I'm not gonna remember his name, but there's this really awesome uh, Irish pr- uh, Catholic priest that's uh, comes on um, Strange Familiars, Timothy Renner's podcast, mm-hmm. and he was talking about the way that the Celtic people and the the people from his uh, from Ireland used to look at emotions was that they come and they visit and they leave. The emotions are not supposed to stay. They're supposed to, you, you acknowledge them, you say hi, and then they go. And they are the, by definition, okay. a liminal thing. And I was like, dude, that's the most beautiful thing. And if we looked at emotions that way as a people, I feel like we'd be healthier in general. <laughs> okay, so that ties into the concept of the muses from Greek mythology. Now, okay. um, a bit off topic, you know that the word music comes from muse. Yes. Um, but okay. please exp- no but please uh, elaborate because no, I, I, I I just want to say like music a muse uh, musings or museum they all come from the word muse okay so that makes a lot of sense I never would have related it to museum or yeah that makes a lot of sense and go ahead so in Greek mythology there were nine muses they are the daughters of Zeus and they were essentially mm-hmm the uh, sources of inspiration for uh, dance, for poetry, for, for music, for uh, geography, astronomy, whatever. I don't know their names and each one is for different <laughs> things, but there is no muse for visual arts. So too bad for you. It's uh, a bummer. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's believed that there was no muse for visual arts because visual arts were uh, at that time more uh, tied to crafting and handiwork. You worked oh. with your hands and not with your mind. That makes a lot of sense. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. And now, uh, what, what, what you reminded me of is this idea that when people in those times were inspired by muses, they were essentially channeling uh, the inspiration from the muses and uh, they were in an altered state of consciousness because they were channeling a higher consciousness. And Absolutely. there is this uh, concept of Plato's four manias. I don't know them now. <laughs> Off the top of my head, I did not write them down. But essentially, uh, mania, as it was perceived back then, was when a person is caught up in a state of transcending the individual consciousness. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. That's really cool. And you said that was the four, like one of the four manias or that was the point of that? That is what a mania is. And he differentiated four (sighs) different types of mania. And I think like one of the, so much sense. One of the manias he added later is, uh, anger. And he said, anger is a mania that uh, appears, let's say, in people who are in war, in war years, because they are in a battle and they need to uh, transcend their own individual consciousness in order to adapt to, to that point in time and space where they need to, you know, kill an enemy. So yeah. when, when they are enraged, or let's say, think of Viking berserkers when they go berserk. Um, they are channeling a, a higher consciousness and they are 
within this altered state of consciousness where they are inspired by a muse in a way (laughs) to do something. Yeah, totally. And that just reminds me of like so much and just uh, like the idea of creativity or muses or like uh, even things like precognition and these things like tying into madness and just mania in general and like you know the way like these worldviews and how like we were just talking about as far as like kids or this is, or the world being enchanted and society just not recognizing them and like how like things like mania these days have such a negative connotation but you know obviously back then it sounded like a divine experience or like something that was of the gods to yeah it was it was divine inspiration it was essentially an altered state of consciousness where you are focused on a certain task and you are channeling inspiration from a muse that was a mania so essentially if you're a poet and you're writing a poem you are writing something and you have no idea where it's coming from and what even you're writing but it's there And And the thing is, uh, I I listened to a podcast about people who are historians who actually studied muses and what muses were in Greek culture. So they said that there is a whole uh, chain of inspiration between the muse and the uh, audience. So let's say the muse inspires the poet to create poetry, to uh, put words on a piece of paper. And then that uh, creative essence goes into the other person who is narrating the same poem and then goes into the audience who is also an active participant in conjuring up this uh, creative imaginal state so there is a whole chain of of the mania transcending uh, originating from a muse going through a poet then a narrator then the audience like what you told me earlier about a punk band and the audience being on the same plane and both of them uh, interacting with each other to conjure up this this creative state let's say yeah and dude that makes me think of so many things in it's very ritualistic It's so ritualistic. It's why things like uh, shows or live performances or all of these like these things that need a creator and an audience like are so magical. And they're so forever like my only goal, like I've never had a goal as an artist or like, you know, any kind of like overall uh, message or anything. But like there's this feeling that certain works of art can give you where it doesn't have to be the best of anything, but it clicks with you to a way where it kind of gives you like goosebumps and like makes the hair on your arm stand up a little bit. And like when you encounter it, you know it and you can't really describe it. And all I ever wanted to do was do that for anybody. And like, this is all touching exactly where that comes from. And that like, you know, you got to have both, both, uh, participating parties to make that happen. Like you need the audience and it kind of relates back to what you were just saying with the importance of the human and the whole, uh, the whole scheme of things as far as offering that creative realm to uh, Gaia. Obviously she's not the audience. I, th- I would say, oh, but uh, it, I, I want to add int- something there. So we're, we're yeah. talking about imaginal offerings. So essentially you're sacrificing something to provide to the other, let's say to appease the mm-hmm. other. But if our consciousness is also a Gaian and our consciousness, or let's say if uh, Gaia taps into our consciousness and our emotional states and whatever, 
Um, mm -hmm. Anything we create, we are creating with Gaia, but we are also providing Gaia because we are, you can say that we are creators of the imaginal space of the creative um, uh, abstract that we are making. Let's say, let's say it's a human creation, but also okay. it is in itself an imaginal offering to Gaia because in creating these new worlds that are not material, we are providing Gaia access to those worlds and Gaia can live within those worlds and mingle within them. And so that, that is the imaginal offering we are providing. Yeah. We are providing Gaia the experience of the human experience. And allowing, like, you know, the more you say that, the more it really resonates with me because things like, you know, we've talked about before as far as, or I, I love when you tell it's resonated a lot with me when you talk about things like the UFOs being a way that Gaia is kind of like making us look up and like think about, you know, uh, whether it's like getting off this planet and spreading Gaia's consciousness intergalactic, like using fiction and art and creativity, like you can make that same argument from like the creation of Star Wars and all of that stuff to like just the way that like, you know, media in general seems to have very consistent themes pushing humanity in certain ways at different points throughout culture. And if we give Gaia access to that part of the uh, group consciousness, then like that's a whole nother tool for uh, the life to expand and to it continue, is, right? Okay, so there is this in biology this innate need of life to express itself. And this exists even, even on the molecular level of genes and DNA. So you know that DNA is universal for all life on Earth. Even humans and bacteria even have the same genetic code. Whoa. Yeah. I've heard that before and it blows my mind every yeah. time. <laughs> we have the same, okay, so essentially you know that DNA is comprised of nucleotides. And there are four okay. different types of nucleotides and yes. how they are arranged determines how the uh, arrangement of the nucleotides translate into the arrangement of uh, amino, amino acids, which comprise mm -hmm. a certain protein. And how yep. the genetic code is read is that three nucleotides are read to uh, equal a certain amino acid in the chain of the protein. And okay. this, uh, this, uh, genetic code is the same even for bacteria and even for us like the same triplet of nucleotides will give the same amino acid in all levels of life on earth it's universal that's amazing yeah. i i knew that there was like relation all the way down but i didn't know it was that uh, strong so uh, the data of life itself is written in dna in just four different types of of uh, uh, characters, let's say, though it's kind of like binary code, but instead of two, it's four. <laughs> so oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there is this uh, innate need for the expression of DNA. DNA ex expresses itself by uh, translating the genetic code into a sequence of amino acids to form a certain protein. And then proteins interact with each other and enzymes and whatnot to express what a living being is. And the DNA of an organism is referred to as a genotype, while what uh, is produced by the DNA as an expression of the genetic code is the phenotype. It's essentially uh, the form of life. Okay. So and the phenotype is an expression of life, but it all just can be reduced to just four different, uh, different nucleotides. Uh, 
in the genetic code. It's very See, that's fascinating. Just, that's amazing. And like it, it speaks to so much. Like it really like that, you know, that connectivity that we feel with nature and everything that is definitely in my view, something related to consciousness or spirituality. It's also physical. It's also just like straight up biological. You are, we're made of the same stuff. So you can see Gaia as a giant group of genetic resources of data of biological data, but expressing itself in various different forms, expressing itself in, in bacteria, in fungi, in, in fish and earthworms and lichens <laughs> and humans. And now as we That's are beautiful. humans, as we have kind of transcended a bi- biological evolution, uh, we cannot form new universes just via our genetic code, but our genetic code can form, let's say, a brain that is able to tap into a consciousness. And with yep. that consciousness, we can, uh, isolated from the ecological factors, create new dimensions of existence where now human life can be expressed in various creative, immaterial ways. And as we are extensions of Gaia, Gaia is through us expressing herself. It, it, the point of life is is expression and its creativity and art. <laughs> yeah, no, see, I, I love that so much. And I think it's it resonates on multiple levels with me. And it makes me think of one of my favorite kind of uh, science fiction, another like science fiction plot line that uh, is from one of my favorite comic books where essentially like these entities and whether you want to cryptids go any of it these fictionalized characters the way that some like you know mass uh a lot of people would view them fictionalize themselves on purpose they realized at some point in the timeline that their uh you know corporeal beings are not timeless and they realize that the way to be timeless is to fictionalize and, and and like purposely put themselves in a category of unbelievable if that makes sense like it's part of the idea of them being kind of like self like uh always allowing for the possibility for it not to be real like they do that on purpose and it's allowed them to enter this fictional realm and evolve and last way longer than if they didn't and i i think that's where we're all going (laughs) if you want to transcend your corporealness let's say your material objective reality into you know a subjective abstract reality you need to utilize that via a species that is very malleable and adaptable and humans you know are very very adaptable it's we very create true. technology that dominates the physical world around us so we can make our lives easier. Um, so it is not weird to me that we would evolve in a way, be favorized by Gaia, let's say, because, okay, let's say you are right. We are special, <laughs> but Gaia can live without us. But why would it, it, it would be like reducing yourself to um, watching one movie your, the rest of your <laughs> life instead of having Netflix with thousands of movies, you know? <laughs> Exactly. What's the point? What's the point? So <laughs> if you want to express yourself, if the purpose of your existence is expression of life, uh, the ultimate expression of life is having an organism with the capability to create imaginal realms. And uh, because we are adaptable, uh, we can fuck up the planet all we want and then create, <laughs> you know, isolate ourselves and create these imaginal realms. But also, like, if we need to, go outside of the planet and terraform the rest of the universe. We, yes, no. uh, we carry the imaginal with ourselves in our heads. So we 
we create we carry the biological essence of Gaia ourselves and germs and whatnot to other planets, but we also carry around this uh, capability of creating new imaginal worlds, which are already able to, from the get-go, transcend the material reality of a barren planet. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I think you are spot on. And yeah, I think it's just like such a good way to kind of grok the weirdness of 2022 and the world in general, if you ask me. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I know like uh, people like Terrence McKenna had ideas like the novelty ramp up and things like that. And like, I think there's definitely something to it. And I, this is a way to kind of make it like, make it purposeful almost. I don't know. It's really interesting when you get into things that aren't um, directly related to the paranormal, but they're like way more related to just like life and uh, consciousness in general that I think is the kind of point of all of this. Like, and that's, I, I always forget that that's not the point for everybody, but I hope eventually that, uh, you know, they at least think about this stuff because if nothing else, these are just like, it makes your brain feel good. Like I feel good just talking to you about this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like it's like there's a, there's something that happens and I can see it like when you and Christina talk, like there's something that happens about connecting with people that have like similar ideas, but have thought about certain parts of it more or like have different parts that you've never thought about. And like being able to exchange these things is, I feel like making its own, uh, you know, its own set of art that is going to, change the world in some weird way at some point. <laughs> well, that that's why I say you were the puzzle piece missing for me for a long time, because wh what's the point of it? What What's the point of evolution of life to bring upon a species that is capable of creating new dimensions of existence? What does Gaia have from that? And then you open up the possibility, maybe it's just art. Maybe it's just this innate need to express and that makes a lot of yeah. sense. Biologically, it makes a lot of sense because of, you know, the concepts of genotype and phenotype. The genotype is essentially the same for every organism out there, but the phenotype is where the diversity lies and where you have millions of different forms of life and expressions of, of Gaia in a way. And it could have just stayed with the first one, right? Like it could have, like if 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 creation wasn't the end goal, it could have just stayed with the not, you know, everything's the same forever, right? Like would that have worked? Okay, so you can't because the the point of evolution is uh, that organisms adapt to changes in the environment, and the environment is constantly changing because uh, it yeah. is not alive and it can yeah. do whatever the fuck it wants. So totally. if you are a living being, the more diverse you are, the more you have chances of surviving uh, different uh, shifts in environmental factors. You know, a portion of your that population will die off, but there will still be a portion that lives on. So the more species you have, the more you have genetic resources capable of withstanding any type of scenario that comes upon your way. And think about it. If you now not only have genetic resources, but also imaginal resources. You have yeah. a species that is able to adapt, not uh, materially, but is able to create and inspire ways of uh, creating, let's say, technology or ideas so that it may adapt to changes. Yeah, Something very, very malleable. Then, then you have the potential of uh, surviving anything, even if, let's say... Gaia needs to now sacrifice its body to us. 
as a, a maternal sacrifice to its most, let's say, chosen children. <laughs> Though that's a very <laughs> fucked up concept to think I, of. Because I, I feel you know, like that hurt you to say that, Vuk. It, it hurt me because you know the ecological disaster we're we're bringing upon the planet. Yeah. But yeah. there can be a guy in. Uh, end to all that maybe she is allowing us to play on her in her sandbox so we may develop this consciousness and creativity so we may eventually leave the planet and colonize other planets bringing this dimension of existence with us and also leaving behind the planet which is already kind of doomed I mean, eventually yeah. the sun will explode. <laughs> I was going to say, with or without us, right? Like, it's going to happen if, well, at some point. Well, Gaia will, will go with us because we are Gaia. We are extensions of Gaia. Yes. It's, so that's it's, the... just, it's just, you know, like uh, technology. Dude. Every few years, uh, there is an advancement in technology, and the old yeah. technology becomes redundant. And you're no longer you know, using uh, you're no <laughs> longer using that th- wooden thingy to wash yeah. your, your clothes. You're using a washing machine. Um, you know what's funny, Vuk, is that yeah. you make me feel very positive about the future, talking about this stuff. And like, it, especially um, having kids, like those type of things scare the shit out of me. Like we definitely had lots of conversations and like, I, I, I like as far as like whether we should have kids and stuff like that. But there was something that just said yes, even even with all of the environmental, tra- you know, looming tragedies and whatnot. But talking like this makes me feel like it was the right decision because, like, okay, so yeah. <laughs> there, that depends on how anthropocentric you are. Because I am still open yes. to the idea <laughs> that all humanity may die off and go extinct. Yes, no, totally. I'm, I'm, I, you know, as a uh, slightly pessimist at points, that is always in the back of my mind. Or I wouldn't say pessimist, as but, a anxious person, a very anxious person. That <laughs> to is me, uh, that, in that's my brain not all a time. pessimistic concept because. Yes, it is the extinction of human life, but human life is not life itself. There are many different forms of life and life will go on. Who knows? Maybe we exist so we may be utilized to send pods of of ponds come to other planets so that ponds (laughs) come can evolve into something else while our planet burns to death. Oh, uh, see, I'm in like, yeah. So if that like invisible uh, head fish takes over, I'm okay with that. Did you see that thing recently? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, that transparent head fish is one of my new favorite friends. I, I'm really glad. It's awesome that we can find things that look that fucking weird still. That's awesome. It, it, made, me, it made my day. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's a really, uh, again, you're right. That's a positive way. Of, like, okay, we're, we're I, I want to teach you how to be positive about that. So if you think of mosses, if you think of earthworms and bacteria and stuff like that, you're thinking about it as an other. But you need to think about it as it is the same as you. Genetically, it is the same. It, the, the DNA works the same way. And we all yeah. originate from the same source and all have a common ancestor. You need to think about it as your as your siblings, not as something else out there and ew, gross. It is no, just very... another. It is just another expression of life, and you are just yeah. another expression of life in this in this <laughs> endless uh, collection of millions of expressions of life. No, I I feel that that's it's. I am very uh, grateful to have you to remind me of those things often, Vuk, because I definitely fall down that uh, rabbit hole too often. <laughs> But no, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that is a very good way to have a, you know, 
who knows what the end goal of all of this is and i am i'm pretty okay with uh if if moss you know takes takes over as the leading uh, <laughs> uh i guess life form on the planet that's fine with me at this point i think but it's it's interesting to again kind of think about that in the lens of like um what the like if creativity plays such a key role in all of this and like we have a very human obviously uh perception of creativity and all of that like what is like you know these animals and these microbiomes and these little microorganisms and stuff like the creativity that goes on in there is do you feel like that has the potential or like is is there any way to compare the two? Like, is there any way that like the two could be Gaia could get the same thing from a uh, you know? Okay, but, but, but the thing is, uh, for Gaia to get that same ad- uh, uh, adaptation from those organisms, those organisms need to evolve multicellularity and then uh, specialization of uh, gotcha. tissues and organs yeah, and you know. That- <laughs> the long road to senses and the brain and stuff like that so we already yeah. have all the resources now it is it is up to us to see what we can do with the resources we're giving and so if if we fuck it up no worries <laughs> everything will go go haywire uh 99 of life will die on earth there will still be bacteria and it will take another two and a half billion years for something else to evolve <laughs> But the same, the same thing could happen. That's yeah, no, that's awesome. I I like that a lot. That's uh, yeah, very scary, but in the best way. I can see, like, I I'm feeling the positivity a little bit more from that. <laughs> well, you know what would be scary? It would be scary if something like this was happening in the stages of life when every in the stages when our common ancestor was alive because and it did happen so all life on earth has a common ancestor one just one it is called the sen ancestor per evolutionary theory and it is the organism that all life currently on earth evolved from but it was not the only species on the planet there were a lot of different species but they all died out and only this one survived and managed to create all life on earth wild and what was that some form of bacteria possibly <laughs> that's that's the best answer you could have given <laughs> that's that's awesome so wow yeah that's super that's just really wonder inducing to be honest with you that just you know i i i love how ridiculous well, okay. that seems so think of, think of this <laughs> if 99 percent of life on earth went extinct as it did at that time yeah. And uh, freaking bacteria was able to survive and create all that we have now where me and you are now talking and tapping into imaginal realms because of that stupid bacteria from two billion exactly. years ago. Yeah. Just- so imagine now with all the resources of life on Earth that now Gaia has at its disposal, it has us as imaginal beings which can create technology and transcend what biological organisms can do. But it also still has bacteria. It also still has mosses. It also still has fungi, you know, stuff like that. Um, whatever happens, it will still have a resource available to move on. Yeah, now, no, that makes, we can, that makes a lot of sense. We can maybe think up of how ways to save the planet and ways to make everything better. But if we don't, it's not that catastrophic it is for us but there will still be some bacteria that will survive that cataclysm and move on yeah 
No, that that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, it's nice to know that, uh, you know, in general, Guy has invested so much into us and we're the best bet at that point. It's in certain ways, it, it seems. But it has but, uh, so many cards at its disposal. That exactly. Now that's what I was going to say. It is near impossible. Maybe only if the sun explodes. It is near impossible <laughs> for Gaia to lose all of its cards at once now. Yeah, that's that's really that that's reassuring. I, I, I like how you bring a positive light to that book. That's awesome. Do Though you, I know half of my audience will be terrified of all these <laughs> ideas. Well, you know, it's definitely one of those things that I, I'm not exactly sure how we got here from imaginal offerings, but uh, I really like that we did. And I feel like one of the things I think I asked you at some point when we were talking about using that as kind of like the jump off point for this was like, what do you think these Fae do with all this like creative energy or like, is it for them to create their own things or like, you know, like do they just not, or is it more along lines of what you hear with like the Greek myths where gods come down here to experience things like art because they can't experience that. Is it more along those lines or like, and the reason I bring that up now is because mm -hmm. what you just explained to me and like the ideas of like these large pushes and these, I don't want to say like cosmic goals, I guess, like these, these ginormous, like if the, if Gaia is sentient and conscious, like it's will is really confusing to me. You know what I mean? Obviously it's something that humans aren't going to be able to grok. And like, it, do you think the Fae functions as like a mirror of that? Does that make sense? Uh, are we talking about the Fae as actually being a thing out there? Yeah, totally. <laughs> because I, I'm not, I'm, I'm on the fence about that. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I'm with you. With I, I definitely, uh, I, I, I think I'm, you know, I got a foot in both camps as far as I'm concerned. Uh, as far as these things having like you know any kind of material okay. reality and so, stuff but uh, like okay. as far as the thought experiment is what i'm saying the like you know experiment. just to, so i see the fey as archetypes within a social unconsciousness yes, a collective totally. unconsciousness so not as things out there that exist per se but as imaginal beings as living concepts and if there is a living concept and i talked about this on so many shows and i know people find it very hard to think of that but Language evolves, you know, it's a living being mm -hmm. language. It does not exist materially, but exists alongside us in our minds. And it yep. is evolving. Wherever we go, it changes and adapts and diverges into different languages. It is a being that is evolving alongside us. So Absolutely. it lives in symbiosis with us. So I can see the Fae as archetypes that are living in symbiosis within us and within our society. Now, if something is a living concept and a living idea, it operates in the imaginal realm. And uh, mm -hmm. the more you uh, construct the imaginal realm, the bigger the, the playground is for this to express itself. Gotcha. Now that makes sense. So the more that we invest time into this, the more extent they're expanding. It's what we've been talking about as far as life just wants to keep going. And well, you know, imagine, if, imagine if the fairy realm is an egregore of uh -huh. humanity. It is a product of a collective belief in the fairy realm. Mm hmm. So the more people you have who are believing in the Fey realm and influenced by it, they are in turn influencing it to materialize more and become a reality so the Fey can live within their Fey realm. 
which is yeah. a product of our collective uh, belief in it. A tulpa or an egregore. No, I, I definitely, I vibe with that a lot. I, def, I, it's one of the big questions in the paranormal realm in general. And I, I, excuse me, I like a lot of different people's views on it. But as far as like, I am uh, like almost hundred percent in what you in the same camp as what you just said. That's the stuff that really makes. Uh, resonates with me. It makes me happy is thinking about the this all through that like you know this is living folklore like this, these are like uh, you know living breathing myths and, and stuff. And the folklore uh, evolves like we have yes. fey folklore now we have alien folklore. It's the same thing with a different mask. But totally for for the, this living concept to survive with the progression of time through history and uh, the changes in contemporary culture, it needs to adapt to the contemporary culture and the contemporary mindset and the pop culture even. So now like people are covering everything in concrete and we are obsessed with technology and nobody is obsessed with the Fae. There are still yeah. people and maybe they sometimes have encounters with the Fae, but that is nothing. Um, yeah, that is not yeah. enough. So now yeah. this living concept takes the mask of not a fairy, but say an alien, because mm -hmm. we are enticed to look up, up at the stars and imagine, wow, are there our other civilizations out there which have much more advanced technology than us? So it presents Absolutely. itself to us as that, because we are focusing more and more of our intention and attention towards that image. Yes, I think that's that is again uh, the stuff that I really love, and I think like obviously is what keeps me coming back to these types of thoughts and like uh, phenomenon and stuff. But the 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 part that like I I still and maybe it's just like the you know twelve year old who discovered Bigfoot for the first time in me, but like there's a part of me that like doesn't can't discount like the corporealness or the realness of like are you completely out of the fact that like a tulfa could be a physical uh thing that's manifested in this realm i i'm not, i i'm not sure so i appeared recently i was interviewed by a prominent ufologist okay mm -hmm. I, he'd be angry if i said that it's not a ufologist <laughs> but an alien abduction experiencer though he is okay. not of the eth hypothesis so i was interviewed mm -hmm. for a big show i can't share the details but yeah. he did ask me about that he asked me like how do you then explain the um, material evidence of uh, let's say a ufo lands and leaves a circle or something like that mm -hmm. or ghost hunters find some kind of material evidence of of something happening how do you explain that if it is all inside our heads and then i was just you know forced into a corner and said i don't know like Obviously, there is a form of manifestation going on if there is yeah. physical evidence. Totally. So this is the thought process that made me kind of fall in love with Jeff Greipel's work because this is where he gets into the dual aspect monism and things and things that are way beyond my pay grade or level to really understand all the way. But essentially, he formed this really interesting worldview based on a whole bunch of different uh, comparative religious studies and all kinds of other things in which allows for the corporeal material stuff to exist because of the imaginal stuff. And I'm not even going to try and explain it the way he does because I will do a really poor job. Um, but it's my like, it's the thing that like, 
you know how we all get stuck on things when we think about this stuff so much and it's the thing that's been stuck in my crawl lately it's the thing that i keep going back to and Mm -hmm. like you know again like it's i think it's because of that like most people when i hear them kind of talk about it they stumble and like kind of like you know don't really have a great answer and then when someone who like has a little bit more to say about it you see why like a lot of people that would listen to someone like Jeff Kripal talk about this stuff would probably tune out pretty quick and like somewhat understandably. But to me, it is the it's it's the juice or the meat that's left on the bone right now. It's the stuff that like all the stuff that we talk about makes sense 100 percent from the uh, archetype point of view and everything. But if we really take, you know, and the way that Jeff Kripal puts it is he feels like it's doing experiencers and people who have, you know, different type of uh, encounters a disservice to say that none of this stuff could ever be materially re- materially real and i i can't disagree with that you know like and there but it doesn't mean that i would uh have any clue as to how you justify those two situations but again it goes back to the thing i love most about all this stuff is that it doesn't need to be justified and the two can be happening at the same time and that's kind of the magic of it if that makes sense I think it is very dishonest, like for me to say, though I am very heavily um, on, on the side of, okay, it is a psychological, psychosocial, imaginal thing, uh, psychedelic. But it would be very mm-hmm. dishonest of me to say, oh, every instance of somebody having physical evidence of the paranormal, that's just, I don't know, made up or or they're mistaken. It would be very dishonest would, of me to say. Yeah, that. it would be. It'd be like the uh, you know flesh and blood crowd that strips away all the high strangeness from yeah. the Bigfoot accounts and yeah. stuff like so that. It's uh, I I can yeah. only say I don't know. I I can yeah. honestly and that's say my favorite. I don't know. <laughs> that, that's my favorite. Like most conversations that end, like all of my favorite podcasts, I feel like end with I don't know. Like the more that, and it's so cliche at this point, but the more everybody that seems to know anything says, the more that I look into this stuff the less any of it makes sense to me um in a good way (laughs) well the thing is like so even if bigfoot is a thing out there an animal an ape man that is undiscovered that still does not dismiss the uh fact that bigfoot is apart from being an undiscovered animal in the forest also an archetype of a wild man and also a folkloric figure and also that we have sprouted a whole mythology around this animal that we don't even know. So we don't even know what it is. We haven't given a a scientific name. We don't know the biology of it. We don't know how it originated and evolved and survived until this day, if it is real. But all we have is mythology of it and it has seeped into the pop culture now. So the problem that people in the community make uh, constantly. Uh, The thing can exist as an archetype, as a pop culture figure, as a folkloric figure, and also as a living material thing. Yes, that is what I scream at my phone like several times a week. I feel not really, but like I feel that in my head several times a week listening to people talk about this stuff where I'm like, you know, one doesn't necessarily discount the other. Like I have I think everyone has their preferences as far as what may be true or out there. But having a 
sandbox where they can all play seems to be a better situation for me in general. Like I think having the having the uh, possibility of it all is the best way to look at this. Well, you know that uh, there were a lot of animals that were discovered recently in like 100, 150 years ago that cryptozoologists keep saying, oh, they used to be cryptids. But there were these uh, folkloric uh, tales from the people who were interacting with these animals that were very outrageous. Yeah. And they gave magical abilities to these animals. And then we discovered them and realized what the animals are. And I know erased all the mythology around them because white imperial bastards from Europe. <laughs> but let's say <laughs> Do you- down, down the line in a few years, somebody actually discovers what the Bigfoot is materially, objectively as a real animal. And once we discover it and uh, define its biology, we will be surprised how different it is from the folklore we have uh, created in yeah. the mythology. Uh, they would say like, oh, this thing does not knock on wood. And then people would ask, oh, but what about all the wood knocking? Well, maybe the wood knocking was a poltergeist experience. Because yeah. you were tapping into something else while also observing a real creature out there. Totally. Here's a question. You know, I love that uh, line of thought. And here's something I just thought about for the first time. Do you think how fast our culture, like, you know, you mentioned Bigfoot is in pop culture now. And obviously our culture handles these things a lot different than, say, the uh, the cultures that would have uh, known about the um, I guess it was the gorillas that were the big example being used yeah. a lot of the times. So do you think the way that our culture handles Bigfoot as a pop culture phenomenon or icon changes the relationship? Like if we did label it and try to and theoretically take away that magic, do you think it would be less successful because of the way it's entered our like uh, group subconscious or pop culture? Okay, we did not have the pleasure or rather displeasure of going through that growing pain because always it was white imperial bastards coming to yes. indigenous cultures with their already baked scientific knowledge and defining and labeling everything but now Very true. we would if that happened that that uh, scenario that you propose if that happened we would be faced with the realization that we are no better than any indigenous culture that we discriminated against throughout history because we also create mythologies around things that we don't know oh yeah no that's very true and i yeah no that that's a very good way to look at it (laughs) and also like if we're talking about civilized scientific culture you know dinosaurs do you know what dinosaurs are? As far as like the, you know, <laughs> actual like animal or yeah, let's the, say the, what the we... actual din- dinosaurs, do you know what they are? Do you know a lot about them? No, not a well, ton. I know. <laughs> exactly. I know 90s we don't dinosaurs. Know which... We don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. We don't know yeah. anything about di- dinosaurs because everything we do know is mostly speculation and is mythology. We only yep. have fossil evidence to go off of but we don't know how these things behaved and how they lived we know their skeletal anatomy and then we can piece together the evidence and it's partial skeletal anatomy we can piece together Mm -hmm. the evidence by comparative studies the thing that you love most but you love comparative folklore but we are doing comparative folklore of dinosaurs because we are trying to compare fractal skeletal remains with skeletal remains of other animals that are known to us so we may fill in the blanks 
Totally. But it is totally. still mythology and speculation. Yes, yes. No, that makes a lot of sense. And maybe I was referring to the ubiquity, ubiquitiness. You, uh, man, I'm having trouble with words today. The ubiquity of uh, images such as like Bigfoot or the gray aliens and how they've become like symbols outside of themselves. And I, I don't know if any of the previously discovered cryptids had that same or animals thought to be cryptids that were then discovered had that same kind of uh, entrance into the imaginal that these uh, kind of pop culture icons have gained now. And I wonder how that affects the, you know, they, obviously they if anyone did, ever... But, uh, on a very local level, like within uh, oh, an yeah. African tribe, you know, it's not... Oh yeah, no, totally. But I, I, I'm wondering if the globalness affects it. Like I'm wondering, like if we're talking about things like, you know, uh, tulpas and group, you know psyche creating things then like if you know there's got to be a difference between a tribe believing in something and like you know the amount the, just a numbers game if that makes sense like there's yeah, but, way but more we're treading new territory now because uh, we live in a period of globalization and we are all interconnected dude i am in fucking bosnia and herzegovina and I'm i know that's what i'm saying and i <laughs> can go I can go on my uh, AI app now on the phone and insert Mothman and create Mothman art (laughs) from fucking Bosnia. So that's why I'm saying, like, is that a relevant view of, like, do you think the same thing is labeling things still powerful enough to override the fact that these things spread so fast culturally? Like, does that make sense? Am I? Am, it makes maybe sense. I'm but being, I don't know, dude. Yeah. No, I know. I like asking you questions that I know there's no answer to. But like, these are the things that like pop into my brain sometimes. And I think uh, it's that like very kind of, uh, you know, I, 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 not. I'm trying to think of the right word for it. Like, it's. I'm curious about how these things like change through. Uh, not only like, I don't want to say the speed things are tra- are um God, i'm completely losing the ra- rapid pace of modern life yes the rapid pace of modern life totally like it has a lot of downfalls and stuff but like does it make these things more solidified and like more of a like obviously if someone found it like if a scientist discovered a bigfoot carcass or whatever there's no way that at this point in our in the western culture everyone's going to agree on the outcome of that discovery at all like you know what i mean like there's no, no especially, at this point especially not the industry that it was uh, created around the pop cultural image of bigfoot Totally, you, you think totally. the conventions are uh, focused on reality and the truth? No, they are no. focused <laughs> on a pop cultural image, and it is an industry. Yeah, and yeah, how does the, I don't know? There's there's something weird to me about it, and I feel like these things do affect our our interactions with the other in some way. But I don't know, I don't know uh, how to articulate that well enough to really continue down that road. <laughs> you know what, what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of that we will completely bury the real animal. Yeah, and just replace it with the pop cultural one, which is providing us an income. Because this is how Christianity spread throughout the world by essentially erasing the mythologies and histories of other cultures and incorporating them within itself, and saying, yeah. "Oh no, this did not exist before Jesus. This is our idea." Totally. And it's the same as the Roman Empire did with, say, Greek mythology. It it stole everything, appropriated all of Greek mythology. And just change the names. 
and yeah. and sold it sold it to everybody else and that's why they created a giant empire they knew how to sell ideologies and once christianity became a thing then they said oh we might as well steal this as well and incorporate yep. it within our belief system you can't beat a good salesman book i mean it's the <laughs> jack kirby stan lee uh dynamic all well, you know so think it, of it, it like this uh, the orang pandek which is uh-huh. in indonesia i think um yeah, it is in Indonesia. It's where or- or- orangutans live and orangutans yeah. are in Borneo and Sumatra. So the orang pendek, there is a lot of evidence to suggest it's a real flesh and blood thing. Uh-huh. It's a cryptid that will eventually be discovered as a real thing. I, I am certain of that. Okay. But uh, do you know anything about the orang pendek? Not, not really oh. because it's not a pop cultural, you know, figure. It is just a localized no. legend. And like, honestly, even in like when I'm listening to podcasts and stuff or like it was one of those ones that was early on, like that's pretty interesting and I liked it, but like kind of lost its fascination with me probably because it doesn't have the mythology or the, you know, all the other. Who says uh, it doesn't have the mythology? It's just that you are not exposed to the mythology because it's of the locals from Indonesia. That's because what, yeah, nobody. That's very true. And because nobody is making mo- money off of their mythology. Yes. So when no, they that's accurate when they discover the orang pendek and solidify it as a real actual species and give it a name, it will not change much because uh, the impact of that will not be felt globally because the orang pendek is not uh, an overarching, all-encompassing global cultural phenomenon the way Bigfoot is. Yeah. That's very true and sad. And, you know, it's very interesting to think about. And I I think you're dead on, unfortunately. But I also, yeah, I fall victim to that thinking myself, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I, I need to say, like, I'm not putting you, you on the spot. We all oh, make no, this mistake. I, and I make it, it like I am, though I am from a third world country, I am still very westernized and... I am, you know, a, a straight white man. Mm-hmm. So um, it's very hard to kind of shed, shed away the ego and think from the perspective of different cultures and different, um, different his, historical and cultural contexts. No, absolutely. I think that's one of the best things that, like, if utilized properly, though, you know, weird and the mythology and all that stuff can make you way more open to the other and other people's cultures and all of that stuff way uh way quicker than a lot of other routes yeah but only if viewed properly <laughs> yeah man like i'm thinking now of the orang pendek so there is another thing like uh, cultures have different versions of what we would perceive in comparative folklore as the same thing so, okay. you know, the, the fey folklore is associated with the Celts, but all people around the world have fey entities. They just don't call them fey. And we can now yeah. be white imperial bastards and say, oh, fey's are a universal phenomenon. But what we are trying to do is steal, you know, the culture of different people and slap a label of one culture onto their culture. Um, so it's very frustrating and it's very um, problematic like even if the orang pendek is uh, discovered to be a real creature the western bigfoot guys will be all over that in a way oh this proves our bigfoot and they uh. will totally disregard the local folklore and the local name of the thing and they will say oh this is a bigfoot so our bigfoot is also real 
Yeah, that's what, you know what? I I could hear that in my head when you were saying that. That's very accurate. And yeah, that's, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's one of those things that I don't know if there's any way that that'll ever completely flush out of these type of topics. And like the way that it's so left open allows for so much of the stuff I love about this, but also allows for a lot of that type of stuff that is just rubs me the wrong way pretty hard yeah. too, if that makes sense. Like what makes it uh, accessible in that creative way or like become so much of an inspiration to me. I forget also leaves room for a lot of the negative stuff to creep in pretty easily. So I have been, um, thinking about this for quite a while. I don't know if I should do an update update episode on it or no, but here I'm talking about it now. So the first episode I made for this uh, Tracing Owls podcast is about the Chick Charney. I don't know if you listened to that episode. I did. Oh, you did? It's, okay. Yeah, I did. I, I'm, I'm officially all the way through okay. all of them now. So, so. You, know, <laughs> you know that the Chick Charney is an owl-like cryptid on the Bahamas. I had never heard of it until that episode, but yes. So it is an owl-like cryptid. It is said to look like an owl, but not really be an owl, but more like Mm -hmm. a goblin impish thing that can bestow good luck upon you, or if you offend it, it can uh, create the worst kind of misery in your life. Uh, It uh, has a lot of parallels to fae folklore. And Absolutely. it can be viewed as a fae, but I, I don't want to say that because I'd be offending the Chicharnies because they are not fae. They are Chicharnies from the Bahamas. Yes. They have nothing to do with the <laughs> druids of Celtic folklore. But uh, there is this book that I'm going through very slowly because I hate it. I hate it, but I'm <laughs> reading it. It's from Linda Godfrey, who you know. Okay. And it's yes. called Monsters in America. And it is just a catalog of different types of monsters, but it is so bland and like there's a whole chapter on thunderbirds and giant birds and she doesn't go into folklore much or comparative folklore rather, but it's just like this person saw this bird and that date in this location and it had this type of wingspan and it was uh, this many yards away from him and blah, blah, blah. Very boring flesh and blood stuff. Instead of focusing on, you know, folklore and uh, the sociology of it, but okay. So there is a chapter on the Chikcharni in her book, and she wants to make it out to be a Bigfoot. Whoa. Yeah. Really? Yeah, that offended me on so many levels when I saw it. Like, nobody except her is trying to say that the Chikcharni is a Bigfoot, but per her, like... The Chikcharnis make nests uh, on the roofs of of pine trees that are present on the Bahamian Islands, and uh, they kind of string two pine trees together to kind of create an arch out of two pine trees. Gotcha. And and, uh, a lot of this tree fuckuppery that is present in Bigfoot lore. Bigfoot, yeah, yeah, totally. Bigfoot uh, snapping branches off and and, uh, tying two trees together and whatnot. Yeah, totally. She wants to say that it's a Bigfoot because of that, but completely disregards the, I don't want to say fae, but fae-like archetypal uh, folkloric elements of the Chikcharni. Right. That seems way more, uh, you know, in line with what you just told me about them and what the episode like that's so. And was she speaking of people encountering them in the Bahamas or like something in the mainland that people are encountering? 
So she was talking about the indigenous people who used to live on the Bahamas until the 16th century and of the uh, uh, potential that this is a remnant population of the indigenous people who evolved into a Chicharni, let's say. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, I don't know about that. Um, that's, and you said it was an owl, it's an owl like creature. Like that just physically seems like such a stretch. That's wild. And do you, like, have you read other uh, Linda Godfrey books? Is this the first one you were kind of getting? It's, it's the first one, but uh, uh, to be fair, like this is a book from 2010. So it's uh, one of her first books. So I, th- and, I know that she probably fleshed out her work throughout the years and become a better, became a better writer and researcher and is very beloved. But that book does not give her a yeah. lot of credence. <laughs> I feel like 2010 was probably like, you know, even for as much as we talk about the uh, lack of discussing some of these ideas, I feel like 2010, this type of stuff really wasn't talked about in the paranormal as far, you know, flesh and blood was probably way more prominent, it seems. And like, just get, not diving as much into the folklore and the sociological side of things was probably way more the norm. Yeah. Maybe. I don't really know. Because then again, when did Jacques Vallée start writing? <laughs> like, when did all these people start writing those books? Uh, but yeah, uh, well, yeah, that's... the thing is, no, nobody, it, Jacques Vallée is such a prominent individual and his writings are so important and well, highly regarded. And it seems nobody has read his, his work. The dude yeah. wrote uh, uh, Passport to Magonia, I think it was 1969. When it, it yep, was really, I think you're. So I since you're 1969, we had the public idea of the parallels between Fey folklore and UFO folklore, and still yep. people cling to the ETH or in the cryptozoology community to the flesh and blood stuff, and completely yeah, disregard mean, these these comparative folklore elements. Even before that, with Carl Jung and the archetypes, I mean, he was getting at the same stuff. Like he was like with his expression of psychoids and well, his, Carl uh, Jung on, wrote a book, I think, in the fifties about sa- flying saucers. UFOs is one of my favorite papers. Like yeah. it's the thing I read first about Carl Jung. Like he was one of those dudes I just heard people talk about on podcasts forever, and then find like that was the thing that I was like, I should read this, and then I was like, oh yeah, and it's, I mean. The whole archetype thing I love, but like when you get into the actual Carl Jung, like how many are there in Carl Jung? It's like 50 or something. Like it's so <laughs> many. Are, like it's like such a thick world that I like honestly grokking that shit is hard for me. I still. have like, like a it, lot of the audiobooks. I still need to start listening to them, but I need to be focused. Like mm-hmm. yeah. I, I've talked with you before. I, I just pretend I know stuff and that I'm well read, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I just think a lot. I think a lot and come to conclusions by myself. And then, you know, I, I, I haven't read The Eighth Tower. And now I'm going to mm-hmm. read The Eighth Tower. And Kiel has a whole rant about Gaia and about our influence on the planet. And I'll yeah. be like, yeah, I, I came to that independently. And he, he was already <laughs> writing about that in 75. Totally. No, I'm interested. Like, that's something that's super interesting to me, especially with the way that you come to these thoughts independently and allow the other the work that others have done to almost verify like it's it's, it makes it more genuine. And I mean, I'd be interested. I'm with you like they're like, as far as uh, wondering how much of this stuff is actually read by people that talk about it. And I am very like, you know, it's taken me months to finish Joshua's new two new books. and I'm still almost finished. Like I've not finished. And I, I am very much of the type where like, 
I get it because I listen to so many podcasts. Sometimes I'll think I read something and I'm like, I didn't actually read that. I've just listened to like four different oh, people yeah. talk about like, it. I, I and- have mentioned <laughs> Josh's new book a lot throughout my podcast, but I have not even started reading it. I was going to ask that eventually, but I didn't want it to seem like it was, I was calling you out or anything. No, no, but no. Like, the thing is, dude, like I am fully aware that I'm pulling stuff out of my ass, but the more time <laughs> progresses, the more I realize a lot of the stuff I pull out of my ass is then verified when I go and yeah. read something. So I'm just continuing to pull stuff out of my ass and hoping that I am right maybe more than 50% of the time. <laughs> The ass is where the magic comes from, apparently. Oh, yeah, I'm, Kundalini I'm in, energy. Uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> Man, that's a full circle, right? Well, I don't even think we were recording when we were talking yeah. about that, were we? <laughs> that's awesome. I love it. Um, but yeah, no, I think there's something... We were talking a little bit before about how we both kind of prefer to just do more stream of consciousness stuff. And like, I know with my little daily podcast that I do, like... I and even when I'm doing interviews, like I don't write down questions for people because I like when I hear people formulating the stuff in their heads, even if it makes them sound a little less smooth or a little less professional or whatever you want to call it. Like I like when you can tell people are turning things over and like really trying to figure out like what the you know, what the next step in a conversation is and like there's so many times when it's either me talking into a microphone that I realize something or through conversations that like I'll actively realize what I think or like solidify something, if that makes sense. Well, I want to, and I have taught myself to just open up to the muse and channel the muse. And that's why I'm open to being incorrect sometimes. And uh, later on realizing, Hey, maybe I could have formulated that better, or maybe I should have learned something or read something, but I don't care. And yeah. uh, I find it fascinating that the more I have opened up to the muse, the more I have come to conclusions that are actually correct out of nothing. Yeah. So I, uh, we're going full circle back and I just yeah. wanted to mention this. So when I was uh, researching the Greek muses, Somebody mentioned that Socrates back then went on to interview a lot of poets, contemporary poets of the day, and ask them about their inspirations and the meanings behind their poetry. And he realized that these people had no idea what the fuck they were talking about. <laughs> Yet they, they were able to write such, you know, imaginative, creative poetry. And there was this realization that since the poets have no clue what they wrote about that they were probably writing all of this via divine inspiration or inspired by the muses that they were channeling something else outside of themselves. Absolutely. I love that so much and relate to it. Like, so I, no one ever asked me like where I get inspired from or anything like that until I started like doing work for uh, Brandywine coffee roasters, which is my main gig. Like I draw, you know, silly aliens and cats and stuff like that for coffee bags and it really resonated with people and it was the first time I had an audience and when people actually asked me that question I that was the biggest realization is like I don't know like it's just stuff that's been in there or out there that I am putting down and I always defaulted to being like oh I'm inspired by my my kid I have a two-year-old he's a ball of imagination like I just draw what the fuck he's talking about and like you know that's where my but like I realized that's kind of like a uh it was a cop out because I didn't know how to express what you just expressed essentially without yeah. sounding like a pompous asshole maybe, or like, you know, <laughs> maybe that's a sign of true art uh, of art originating from the other, because yeah. if you are able to 
channel something and create something and you don't know why the fuck you created it and what's the meaning behind it and you show it to people and those people see so much depth like yeah. if you listen to me talk with christina i tell her oh this and that about her art and whatnot and she's like yeah i just thought it was cute yeah exactly so no that, i relate that, that's the yeah. sign of true art she was inspired by something to create something uh, to seep a lot of this archetypal imagery into her art that she is not even aware of. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think that is. And like, that's this, it's funny because again, we're kind of going in circles somewhat, but you almost need the audience or that third person, that third party to like help you realize that like without well, yeah. that, like, yeah, you know, feedback, it doesn't really so click. <laughs> when, I, when I said like that, we are the key and that the paranormal is the lock that the other is the lock, mm -hmm. let's say. So uh, I think about that quote like once a day. <laughs> well, the thing is like language exists as long as you have humanity, which will interpret the language and you can have a book and put it out there in the wild and it will rot because it's a fucking object. It is yeah, not a source absolutely. of information unless you have a person who perceives it as a source of information and who can translate it into information <laughs> and knowledge. So what is art then? You know, you can create art yep. and put it out there and it will rot on a piece of paper unless you totally. have a person who can transcend the symbology of it, uh, translate it and and uh, react to it in an imaginal way. Because the person already carries within themselves these archetypes and these historical and cultural contexts, which are prerequisites to understanding the messages you are conveying. Absolutely. It, it closes the loop. It's what it's, it needs, you need it to complete the circuit. Like it really does make, make the whole thing work. Yeah. And that's why the paranormal in order to express itself needs the humans because the yeah. humans have the resources for the expression of the paranormal. This is very, yeah. That that makes all the sense <laughs> okay, of the world. So and the, just the, like the host of six degrees of John Keel, Barbara Fisher she likes uh -huh. this analogy that we are the wardrobe and that the other picks the outfit <laughs> it will wear from our wardrobe. I love that. Yeah. I love that. That's a great analogy. Barbara's really good with that stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I'm imagining I you you creating an art piece now of of a goblin trying out different <laughs> outfits, an alien, a fae, a demon, or whatnot. I love it. That is definitely going in the to draw file. That's exactly yeah. No, that's beautiful. I it's so funny because it's like been on my mind a lot recently with Halloween coming up and like the kids are already talking about like what they're going to dress up like as and you know I, my five-year-old asked me the other day if uh, Bigfoot dresses up for Halloween and I was like yeah almost definitely he dresses up for Halloween duh like and you just saying that just put that image back into my head and I'm like I love that this you know two and hour and some change conversation just sparked the same image as like a random conversation about Halloween costumes with my five-year-old <laughs> when you're saying to and something like dude i'm thinking now what should i do for the intro of this episode and i'm thinking like yeah the episode is two and a half hours long because i was talking with todd purse enjoy <laughs> that's, that. <laughs> that's it that's it i love it i think people will get it <laughs> that's awesome man no, it's, i, I it's, think it is it is um it is not possible for us to to sit down and talk without making a two and a, two and a half hour episode at least. 
No, I'm. Uh, I keep thinking that it's like regular. So here it's a holiday tomorrow. So yeah. like it's it's set for most people that means oh there's no work and you get to. But for me it means I get to do what I always do and hang out with the kids and do more work in good ways and bad ways. But I'm also like oh yeah that's I'm like it's Sunday I should be doing something. Oh no that's right we're all hanging out tomorrow so I can talk to Vuk for two and a half hours and not feel bad about it. <laughs> I, I love this because, okay, so when we're talking about uh, channeling creativity and then you being drained of energy, like, dude, I mm-hmm. am now feeling like I'm on, on drugs. Like I am yeah. totally in the zone, okay. but I know, I know when we cl- click stop recording and I go lay in bed, I am gonna feel like total shit and I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna just shrivel up into millions of pieces. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally, dude. It it sucks. It sucks it out of you. And what we did was as creative over these last two hour, two and a half hours than any like drawing I do or a song that someone's written. Like, I really feel like these conversations, and I feel like people in general limit the definition of creativity a little too much and like to their own detriment. Because I feel like all of this that we just did is creating an art piece and expanding the folklore and mythology that we're all a part of in the best ways. And like, the more people can embrace that the more they'll create for themselves in their own lives. And like, I think that just leads to a better, I don't know, a happier existence, maybe uh, something. There's something okay. to it. Like you said, it, it also enables people to establish symbolic immortality. So I told you, and this is something not a lot of people know about me. So I am asexual and I am yes. antinatalist. So I don't believe it is moral for me to have children. Mm-hmm. Um, now I am not going, I don't plan to have children ever in my yeah. life. So how do I, uh, reproduce and how do I yep. establish the symbolic immortality that is plaguing all life on earth? Um, this is it. I, I don't see it as biological reproduction, but I see it as cross pollinating ideas between people. I see it as me imprinting myself into you and into other people I interact with. And then you carry these imprints of me and spread them out to other people and so on and so on. So I am in a way spreading my influence, not not by establishing a new biological organism that has the same genes as me, because we are now, uh, we have now transcended beyond biological existence. And now we don't need to just reproduce genetically. We can reproduce um, imaginally and creatively and yes. as ideas and concepts like we're, we're still talking about Isaac Newton and and influenced by his ideas so many centuries later and the dude is fucking dead but he is still, way dead yeah and he is still <laughs> immortal throughout through us as long as there is uh, at least one person who remembers him and who is influenced by yep. him he is still there and that's like so meaningful and newton's kind of a great example for a bunch of reasons yeah because he was also (laughs) oh dude i didn't know that that's awesome that's even that's even better wow and even nikola tesla as well wow so it it lined you're in good company (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's it's interesting i mean even someone like newton who's like 
you know, the more that people progress with science, that seems like, you know, Newtonian stuff doesn't work at certain points. And like, but like his ideas are so prevalent. It's doesn't like, even if like all Newtonian physics gets like disproven somehow, it's not going to go away at this point. Like, it's just not like, it's like you said, it's in, it's, it's more than that at this well, point. Well, the thing is, even if we forget who he is and we forget his name, his influence yep. is still felt on the earth because physics would not be a thing now without him and his work. Yeah, so he <laughs> we wouldn't sparked have a chain reaction which uh, brought us to this point in time and space, and that's his immortality. Yep, that's beautiful. I love that. I uh, yeah, nothing better to aspire to, right? <laughs> yeah, though I I will never reach that type of immortality. But let's say I inspire you to create some art pieces some days. And you, you create that, you put it up, some people look at it and are inspired by it and just it's a whole chain reaction and it butterfly effects into something else yep. that I will probably, I'll probably die and never be aware of where <laughs> my influence was felt and how much it reached people. No, I think that's definitely a very true statement and reminds me of what you were saying as far as the muses and that trans that transaction of the muse uh, earlier. I think it's, it's it's the the key like it's we all like passing that stuff on. It's the it's meaningful and what you do is as meaningful as having kids like I did. You know, like yeah. it's not yeah, I I think they're both very important. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know, dude. That's maybe how I rationalize stuff to to um, accept the reality of me being an asexual antinatalist. <laughs> <laughs> We're all just rationalizing something, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, I Absolutely. said in like a very old Darwin's Deviations episode, I put out yesterday the the compilation of those clips, but I said mm -hmm. like. We are the molecules of reality and, you know, the planet is utilizing us to establish flow of energy and circulation of matter. And we just rationalize the, the complexity and the problem of our existence via, you know, religious stuff or via paranormal stuff or scientific stuff. Even science is a form of rationalization of, of, the, yeah. of the human condition. Absolutely. I think that there's, I don't know, there's so many ways to look at it. And I think that what you, what you just said is probably more true than a lot of people would want to admit. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, guys, um, we're going to end this here because we would be going on and on for four hours and nobody wants to listen to that. Yeah, but I, I guess I, two and a half is Yeah, is I, I should surely have you again on the show. Totally. Thank you so much for having me, Vuk. I am like forever like these these conversations. And it is what you just said is absolutely true as far as feeling super drained after we hang up here. But there is this like <laughs> 10 minutes of afterglow of feeling really inspired and awesome after these conversations. It was the same thing like when I used to play shows, I would be physically exhausted. But like the adrenaline and stuff from playing a live performance would last for like you know, 20 minutes to an hour and then it would just be done. But those 20 minutes to an hour is, it, it's the special stuff. Oh, so man, that's you always will, my... You will wake up tomorrow, like in 4, 4 a.m. you wake up then and you will be inspired <laughs> by something I said and maybe you will not even be aware that you that something from me inspired you. 
to make no, art. No, absolutely. Okay, so tomorrow you're making art of kryptonauts, so I, I can't expect <laughs> too much. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see. There's definitely... I. So they touched on, and I, I don't know if tomorrow's going to be a continuation of something that we could do a whole nother podcast about as far as... Uh, uh, encounters with fictional entities like oh, where people yeah. <laughs> encounter like puppets they had a new story of one of those guys and man it was really good and yeah i that could be a whole nother uh two and a half hour conversation about oh, the imaginal did you there. tell me that alan moore somebody saw john constantine yes yeah so he yeah th- there's a whole whew, okay yeah that's a whole big story we can get into <laughs> we're gonna and save that for a tall yeah, episode <laughs> Let's do that because I have, so there's a whole, since I've been reading that Jeffrey Kripal book, that's essentially like a lot of what he goes down is, you know, these thought forms and these creative, Mm -hmm. uh, these creative people bringing their creations into this reality in different ways. And yeah, we, we should definitely do another episode about that book. That'd be super fun. I'm just going to, for the end, suggest you to look into, uh, Walter Gibson and the shadow. Oh, it's in the Mothman prophecies uh, in the very first chapter, I think. That was probably the first instance of this type of thing that I really got into. And then finding out like uh, the incidences with Barry Windsor Smith, who is the original uh, illustrator for Conan, is another one that has some really very interesting psychedelic experiences via the imaginal and paranormal. And yeah, very, very cool stuff for sure. (laughs) Um, One thing I do... No, no. One thing I do want to correct myself real quick on is forever ago in this conversation, when we started talking about the 27 Club, I meant to say Robert Anton Wilson's number uh, synchronicity thing was 23. It's the 23 enigma that Mm. uh, William S. Burroughs was all about and introduced him into. I had the 27 Club because we were talking about it earlier. So I just wanted to correct myself there because the 23 enigma is its whole own other thing that I highly recommend people looking into. It's really you can go down a real big uh, rabbit hole. I think uh, Robert Anton Wilson wrote a article in the 14 Times about yeah, it. Yeah, and then and it, it inspired good. the Jim Carrey thriller, The Number 23. You got it. <laughs> you got it. Yep. So yeah, sorry. I just wanted to correct that because it would bug the shit out of me if I didn't. <laughs> no problem, man. So for the end, just tell the listeners where they can find you and especially our interview that you had on your show. Yes, totally. So I do a little daily podcast where I talk about the artwork I make called, uh, I almost called it the wrong thing. That's really funny. Called Create Magic uh, Podcast. And you can find it wherever podcasts are. And I do an interview segment called Creative Weirdos in which I got to talk to Vuk with another just, I think it was right about two hours, our conversation, but definitely the longest one I've had. And it's so good. It's, It's probably one of my most listened to episodes episodes and I'm really glad that that is the case because I I just love I love getting these ideas out there and that people are willing to uh, go on a two hour journey with us um, well, other the, than the that the reason it's the okay. most listened to episode is because I'm very narcissistic <laughs> <laughs> you're going to go into the analytics and see like 50 listens from Bosnia <laughs> oh yeah see I don't even look at that stuff I should probably I, I try not to look at like I feel very grateful that I do this podcast and these type of things as like a way to kind of just talk to awesome people like you and I don't even bother with how many people are actually listening all the time because it would just make me sad I do that with Instagram enough <laughs> oh and also because I'm not going to be editing this episode like who has the, the time to edit two and a half hour content so yeah. just um, be sure to check us out on Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling this Friday I hope 
oh, is it happening this Friday? I hope it was I coming hope soon. It is. He, he yeah. told me it is, and he's having a lot of trouble editing it. Oh, poor Jordan. Uh, he's a saint. He'll get it done. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, everybody definitely listen to that because that was one of my favorite conversations that I've got to have. We get, I hope we get to do more of those roundtable yeah. discussions. Yeah. I suggested like maybe we should do a roundtable about alternatives to the ETH in ufology. Maybe Love it will happen one day. <laughs> we'll see after he gets done editing this one. Yeah. So <laughs> awesome. until next well, time, guys, <laughs> check out Todd Purse's uh, podcast, Create Magic Daily Weirdo Arts. And follow him on Instagram and all the links will be in my episode description. And that's that, I guess. Yeah. Thank you, Vuk. This was a blast. No problem, man. Bye-bye. All right. I'll talk to, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.